What about Caribbean of Versicolor? Would that be, is that too much for, knew, for a beginner? I knew that was coming up. Okay, so here's the thing with Caribbean of Versicolor. This is a tricky one, and I've been talking about these for a long time. They, on the surface, they are amazing beginners, amazing beginner species. Over the years, I have had more reports of people having their Caribbean of Versicolors mysteriously die than any other species right. of spider. I also recently did a poll where it's like, what was what is the one species? Everybody's got this one species of tarantula that they, for some reason or other, struggle with. And Caribbean of Versicolor was, you added all the rest of them, the, the, the votes together, and I think it still wasn't as high as Caribbean of Versicolor. I've had very good luck with mine. I think somebody that is confident enough in hearing good husbandry information and going by it will do fine with them the problem is they come from an area and this is where it can get tricky with tarantulas because we talk about Welcome back to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Now, today is a very interesting and special episode of the podcast. For those who have been listening to the show since its inception, maybe there are still a few of you uh, in there that have been listening from day one. In November of 2019, I had Tom Moran on of Tom's Big Spiders. It's actually a listener-recommended guest. We had a fantastic chat just discussing the tarantula hobby and how he got into it and, and whatnot. Now, at the end of that podcast, Tom said to me, if you ever find yourself interested in tarantulas and want to get into them, because at the time I was still pretty terrified and kind of grossed out by them, he said, contact me and then we'll record an episode. Fast forward basically three and a half years, I started finding myself fascinated and interesting, interested in tarantulas. So I reached out to Tom and said, hey, I would love to be a guest on your podcast and basically do an episode asking beginner questions and picking his brain and learning what, what I should do before jumping into this hobby. And that's what this episode is. So this is actually a cross-posted episode. This was a, a, an episode that Tom and I recorded for his podcast, Tom's Big Spiders, and he allowed me to post it onto my channel as well as, a, as so I can expose some people to the conversation who aren't following Tom's Big Spiders. If you're not a tarantula person, I get it. I, I, I was there. I get how kind of creepy and disgusting and scary they can be. But I, I tell you, if you watch Tom's content, if you listen to his podcast, you will become interested and you may even find yourself interested in keeping them. I mean, people can say that about snakes, right? I will never keep snakes and now they keep snakes. And so it's the same sort of thing. And that's kind of what I found myself with tarantulas. I don't currently own any tarantulas, although I'm getting very close. And this pot, this episode has, you know, a giant leap forward into jumping into that hobby. So it will not be long until I have a couple of slings in this room. I know that for a fact. Now, a couple of things. If you're watching on YouTube, this is a conversation. This is a classic podcast. Tom and I didn't record a, a po actual video but I did sprinkle in quite a lot of B-roll that Tom was super kind enough to let me use from his channel. So I kind of scoured through his channel. And anytime we talked about particular species, I tried to place that in the episode. So there's something for you to look at. For those who are listening, you won't miss out on any of that because it is recorded as an audio podcast. So I want to say a huge thanks to Tom for having me on his podcast. A huge thanks to allowing me to go through his channel and finding B-roll. And I want everyone to go check out his podcast. Because like I said, if you're somebody who's even thinking about maybe wanting to get into tarantula keeping his podcast is an incredible resource it actually really allowed me to to, to, see, to see some areas that I could probably do better on my podcast some more instructional content more content that is allows people to 
know what to do when they're getting into the hobby. And I think that his podcast has done an amazing job. And it's funny because his feedback is to me is, how do you do so many interviews? And my feedback to him is, how do you do so many solo episodes? His entire podcast is basically just him and being able to you know share information, which is pretty incredible. So I really love this conversation. Again, it's a little bit the tables are a little bit turned because I'm kind of being the one that's interviewed, but at the same time, I'm also asking Tom a lot of questions. So it does kind of fall back into the normal me being the host in a way. So it's an interesting dynamic that way. I do really hope you guys enjoy this episode. If you're looking for more information on this episode or any other, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. Thank you so much to Custom Reptile Habitats for sponsoring this podcast. You can find links to them in the show notes or the YouTube description. If you would like to join us over at Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash animalsathome. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you share it on social media. Make sure you go give Tom's channel a follow as well and on Instagram and the podcast. That would be a a huge help or huge gratitude from my end because I want to bring some of my listeners to his show and vice versa. Let's jump into the episode. Remember, Tom's the host, but I'm being interviewed, but also I'm also asking questions. So it's kind of an inception podcast. Enjoy. All right. So I'm here with Dylan from the podcast and YouTube channel Animals at Home. Welcome, Dylan. Thank you so much. I'm very, very excited to be here, Tom. Thank you for having me. And we've already been chatting a little bit, just kind of breaking the ice before we started talking. We were talking about the fact that the last time Dylan and I met up was a while ago, back in 2000, end of 2019. And at that time, I was on Dylan's podcast. I was incredibly nervous. I was, I, I can't even explain how nervous I was to go on that. So it's weird to be in this position now. But at the end of that podcast, we had chatted a bit after we had, you know, stopped the actual recording, and we had mentioned the fact that if you ever got a tarantula, I would love to have you come on the show so we could talk a bit about that and get a different perspective. And a few months ago, Dylan actually shot me an email and said, "Hey, I'm thinking about getting one. I'm ready." And I can't even tell you how ecstatic I was. And and it was a classy thing. And, and Dylan, I got to tell you, it's super classy because a lot of times in these industries, whether it be YouTube or podcast, people will make promises and stuff. And then it just goes off years go by, nothing ever comes of it. So the fact that you reached back out was huge. So thank you for that, because I am super stoked to do this one. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm very excited. And it was always in the back of my head. And it, it's funny when you talk about, you know, nerves, those we were just saying, you know, 2019, that three years went by insanely fast, almost four years now. And it was very early on on both of our podcasting days. And yep. and for those that don't know, Animals at Home is more of a sort of herpetoculture podcast, uh, reptile and amphibian keeping. And we, we talk a lot about the ethics of keeping and how to how to do better by the animal, increase welfare and whatnot. And, and But the same as you have, Tom, I have listeners that reach out and say, oh, can you have this person on, this person on? And someone said, hey, have you heard of Tom's Big Spiders? He, he has his own podcast. <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, I would love to have it. Cause I love crossing into other hobbies as well, you know, Yes. Uh, inverts and whatnot and and that was early on I, I forget what number we were t- I think maybe like episode somewhere in the 30s or the 40s and animals at home ways now. back well, yeah it was a ways back and now we're at like 156 or 100 something like that so anyway that was a long time ago and and uh, at the time I was still very far away from the tarantula hobby but I could understand why somebody would keep spiders like that didn't ever shock me because I keep reptiles. So I'm already kind of in that weird group, but it was always in the back of my head that like, is it whenever that switch flicks, uh, I will contact Tom and, and we'll do an episode about it. And I, I really appreciate that. I can't even tell you, and we were talking beforehand about that, like a week before you emailed me, I was walking with Billy and I'm like, yeah, I wonder if he ever got into it. And I do follow your podcast. So I hadn't heard anything mentioned. So I'm like, unless he's hiding it, he's, he's not gotten into him yet. But to hear, to hear back from you was awesome because it was, I remember going in so super nervous at the time. 
And this was back when we were at my old house where I basically did this in my living room. It was the worst place you could possibly shoot a podcast between my neighbors driving by with their trucks and the dogs. And I remember Billy huddling outside with the dogs trying to keep them quiet. It was just a nightmare. But then I remember the time just flying right by. It was just an effortless conversation. So I was really excited to get you back here so we could kind of continue that. So huge welcome from my end. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. For folks who may not be familiar with the Animals at Home podcast, and they should be familiar with it because it's an excellent podcast. It's not you really. I love the fact that you break down, really get into the husbandry of the animals, the some of the ethics of the animals. What can they expect if they listen to your podcast? So, in general, the podcast kind of explores what we can do better as keepers. So, it really is keeper centric and keeper focus of course animals play a huge role we get into you know deeper you know aspects of husbandry and whatnot which i can kind of expand on in a second but a lot of it is analyzing okay we we do have to admit the fact that we are keeping you know quote unquote exotic animals we're keeping animals that only a few generations back are wild and despite the sort of side of keepers who say i can do what i want i can keep whatever animal i want you can't tell me what to do i think there is a very important role that keepers can play to say okay if if we are keeping these animals we at least should justify it in some capacity and the way i think you can justify it is a making sure that you increase the welfare of the animals that you're keeping so understanding the natural habitat that they come from making sure that there is a high level of enrichment in the enclosures and and you know things like lighting is something that we talk about a lot on the podcast expanding into the different segments of the lighting spectrum and understanding how that impacts the animal's physiology and why it is so important that animals have a photo period and access to uv and infrared light and whatnot and and it, it is so so that's a huge part and then the other part of it is is supporting conservation in in some capacity so we we do there are wild counterparts to all the animals that we keep in the wild. And a lot of those places in the world are being, you know, if if it's being uh, deforestation or uh, different, sometimes it's man-made, sometimes it's climate issues in in those areas. And I think we want to do our best to support the wild as best we can because it's, it's, it's not a mystery to anybody that a lot of our animals, you know, there's a wild caught industry and we want to support captive breeding. So we're not constantly pulling from the wild and, if we can use the animals that are already in captivity to help the animals that are in the wild, I think that's a good way to close that ethical loop. So a lot of it is just discussing that. What can we do better as keepers? What can we, how can we approach the community and say, hey, actually reptile keeping or even invert keeping is, is a positive for our society in so many different ways. It's, it's not just that I'm keeping snakes because I like snakes. Of course, that's a part of it. But I keep snakes. I also participate in conservation. I also have a really deep understanding of the natural habitat that these animals come from, and I'm able to replicate that in my home. We can use these animals as a, as a place for education to, tr- to teach people how important nature is, give them that contact with wildlife without having to go to the rainforest. Not everybody gets a chance to go to the rainforest. So there are so many facets to reptile keeping and amphibian keeping and invert keeping that is is so positive. But if we just focus on, you know, the classic thing that I talk about all the time that is is morph breeding in, in reptile keeping and it's kind of got out of hand lately. And if we just focus on interesting morphs and keeping reptiles in small racks and tubs, it doesn't give us a good foundation to stand on when we're trying to convince people that we ought to keep, you know, these animals in our homes. You know, I, I always say nobody your neighbor's never going to understand why you keep 50 snakes in your basement. And the same thing would be for spiders. No one's going to understand why you keep 50 spiders nope. in your basement. It's just, it's just if you're not in this hobby, you will not understand it. So we have to give them some tools and give outsiders a perspective that they go, oh, 
That makes a lot of sense. I totally understand that. And even though I wouldn't keep a spider or a, or a snake myself, I can support you doing that. So that's sort of a nutshell of what the, the podcast explores. Beautifully encapsulated. And I think there are obvious some serious parallels to tarantula keeping that it's something that as I've spent more and more time doing it, more and more time talking to folks about it, and then more and more time watching the news and watch how the hobby is portrayed. You know, tarantula, the tarantula hobby is a bit behind, I think, reptiles and that we kind of flew under the radar a lot longer than some of the other hobbies out there, exotic hobbies, whether it be reptiles, you know, snakes, even exotic fish. But I think it's really blown up to a point where it's starting to get a lot more public interest. Mm -hmm. Uh, News agencies, I'm seeing, we just talk about it, my Google news feed. And anytime there's some type of spider article, I get something on it. And some of them are, are great. Some of them are, hey, we discovered a new species. A lot of them are not. And I do feel like there is a lot that we can do as a hobby now moving ahead to be more conscious as far as the impact the hobby can have on wild populations, what we can do to help wild populations, what we can do to represent the hobby better. So I think that's one of the reasons why I always liked your podcast is you always have that side of it in mind where a lot of folks, it's sometimes it requires you to delve into things that you don't want to think about as a keeper. You want to think, Hey, I'm keeping these beautiful animals that are going to be extinct soon and possibly in certain areas. You don't want to think, Hey, by me having this animal, it means they pulled a bunch of them out of the wild and we contributed to it. So I think there is kind of an ethical component to it that I found it's difficult to discuss sometimes because it is a business and those that are involved in the business side of it don't really want it discussed. So absolutely. Keep it up because I I love it and I think that's why we're similarly minded in that respect and why it's like so glad we could connect on this. So obviously you are here on the podcast. Obviously we ended the last one. I talked about when I did my little outro for it. I said I really had a great time and I hope that he gets involved in the hobby because I would love a chance to talk tarantulas with him if he decides he's going to get one. So here we are. How do we get here? Well, it's pretty interesting because you know being part of the reptile world, you see tarantulas all the time which is like you said there's a massive overlap you go to expos and whatnot you know there's a you know maybe five percent of the tables are are arachnids and inverts and whatnot and i would say over the years since we last talked my level of i would say disgust which is just being honest with the spiders has slowly decreased i mean i still am terrified of you know like centipedes and some of the like there's 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 still some inverts that people keep where i'm like okay that that i don't i think i can honestly say that will never be in my home um and i don't know if i ever said that with tarantulas i'm not sure if i ever said i would never keep a tarantula so it's always kind of been there and then uh you know even even in september i went to the Canadian Reptile Expo, which is a big expo here in Canada and Toronto. And there was, you know, Tarantulas Canada were there. There was a few big tarantula suppliers. And I didn't even really look at the tables because at that time, I wasn't even, it hadn't, the switch hadn't been, you know, turned on yet. But what happened is partly, I think there's a combination of things. But one of the things that happened is within the last year or so, my wife and I moved out of this city. So we were on like the fourth floor apartment in inside a city. And now we're more kind of rural in the country and we're in a, in a townhouse. So we're at the ground level of, a, uh, you know, of the outside, which means, you know, insects and bugs come into your home. That's just part of living outside yep. or living on the, on the ground floor. It didn't happen really when we lived in an apartment. So we start getting spiders in the house. And uh, I have always, I've never been a person to kill an insect that ends up in the house or an arachnid that ends up in the house. It's just not my style. I always collect them and, and put them back outside, which my wife really <laughs> doesn't like. She would rather me just kill them. But <laughs> yep. I'm, I'm someone that likes to respect, you know, they, they didn't end up 
just, you know, they accidentally wandered into the house. They don't deserve to die. So this started happening throughout, you know, into the fall, I guess, as the temperatures dropped and spiders started coming to the house. And so I started moving them, you know, you know, putting them into containers and putting them outside. And I, I just had these like really peaceful experiences, almost doing like, you know, rehousings in a way, like watching how you guys do it with a paintbrush. I think I grab like a pen, you know, and give them a little tap on the bum and go into the, the cup and then bring them outside. And, and you realize like how, how relaxed that experience can be. And it, it, it was, I, I don't even really know how to describe it other than it was just a peaceful experience. And then it gave me more of a respect for the animal themselves and, and just, you know, enjoyed looking at them. And then, you know, later on, we went to a local expo and, and actually my, it was my wife that was looking at the spiders this time with little like, slings in a cup. And even though sh- she's still like terrified of them, but I could yeah. see the fascination in her eyes because it was one of those things where even knowing you're afraid of something, if you see something in a container that you know is like, you know, safely enclosed, uh, you can kind of give that space for fascination. And I was watching her, you know, build a fascination in them and so now i can blame her because because i was watching her and I, then that sort of built my fascination as well so after that i came home this would have been like you know october or november i just started dove into it head first just like many people you know that that the yep. the button was turned on and so i just started devouring everything you know watching a lot of your content listening to your podcast and there's you know a, a bunch of other creators watching those types of videos as well and and then uh and then that's why I emailed you. I'm like, you know what? We're 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 getting close. I think. <laughs> I appreciate, it. and it's funny that you mentioned the fascination part because I think that's I've always said that's the way to hook people on them. They are fascinating once you start to get to learn more about them, and that's usually how I get people to stop looking at me like I'm a weirdo because it'll eventually come up wherever I am that oh this guy's got a bunch of spiders, and then I have to try to hook that fascination. And I think with some people, it's I mean, like you said, there's a lot of folks. It's a genuine disgust of them. For me, it was a fear. It was, I wasn't so much disgusted, but they scared the ever living heck out of me, Mm -hmm. but I was always kind of fascinated by them. So that's what allowed me to kind of keep them. Even when I was still scared, when I got my first way back, I was terrified of her in a way, but absolutely enamored with her and fascinated by her. And I think that's the thing that tends to pull people in as far as the hobby goes. And I can't tell you how many folks that will stumble. I love the ones that stumble on a video or I've even had people that will listen to the podcast and be like, listen, I just find this interesting hearing about you guys because it's kind of weird, but now I'm kind of interested in them. Now I'm kind of, you've said something that I found kind of interesting and I th- started doing research and they're really fascinating. It's like, yes, that's exactly it. And when you keep them, it gets even better because you find out there's a lot of, a lot to admire about them and a lot of fascinating things that they do. Yes. Well, and, and it, it was really interesting because I haven't been, I haven't dove into a, a new hobby in a long time. I've been keeping reptiles for you know a long time, you know, almost 20 years probably. So it's been a long time since I've done something new so it was a really cool experience to approach an animal keeping hobby from zero information and it actually helped me record my podcast because I was able to sit in the shoes of somebody who really knew nothing about reptile keeping and and this is kind of how their mind might work or the questions that they might have so that was a really cool experience as well just for me personally with, with my own podcast being able to approach it that way but also there's this overwhelming amount of information with spiders if way almost way more than than reptiles because reptiles unless you are more of an advanced keeper you're not going to be exposed to too many species like you you have your basics your ball pythons king snakes corn snakes those types of things but with spiders i mean you, you start looking into tarantulas and then there's just lists you know it just like scrolls yep. <laughs> infinitely and you're like wow i don't even know where to start with this the the care seems relatively straightforward but there's just so many different species and and so it sort of unravels into this like 
incredible experience of just kind of digging through that. As someone who likes to do research and, and loves information, it was it was a really fun experience for me. And it's funny you mentioned that because it, you said you started like around October and here we are, you haven't picked one up yet. And that's amazing. Unfortunately, there are very few of us like that out there. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing I try to tell folks before you jump right into it, do the research first. Yes. It's easier. And and I think the problem is people like you and I enjoy research, which makes us sick to some <laughs> yeah, people yeah, yeah. because I've told people like, how do you like doing this? I love doing it. If I find something new that interests me, that's fun. You're learning. It's it's, And I get that's just something some people have. Some people, it's like, give it to me as quickly as possible. And that's where I think I have a place with the tarantula hobby because I try to sum up what I do as quickly and as efficiently as possible so people that don't want to wade through all that information can get going more quickly. But I do think that's one of the biggest things I encourage folks. They're like, I'm kind of looking. Take your time. Yes. There's so many spiders out there, so much to learn, so many things that will just make it easier for you if you know about it ahead of time and have it in the back of your mind. Whether your experience is very important, and I do feel like working with them does, There, you do have to actually work with them to get certain amounts of experience. But knowing some of the things ahead of time really help. And I've heard from folks who have been like, listen, I researched for a year and I'm all freaked out. And I've had this these guys now for several months and this is really easy. And it's like, good, congratulations. It is easy. And it's because you did all the research ahead of time. Yeah. Well, and one thing that happens too, and this is easily overlaps both hobbies is when, especially, I mean, I think both hobbies have a, a good percentage of people to have, you know, sort of the ADD, ADHD sort of spectrum. If, yep. if you... If you initially, you know, run off that initial excitement of going out and getting an animal, you will end up over your head really quickly because there's an excitement of buying something new and you can get into that constant cycle of needing to buy something new and needing to buy something new and needing to buy something new. And that's what you're feeding your excitement off of. And so you almost need to go through that crest of, okay, it's super exciting. Like you're looking at tarantulas every single second of every single day that might only last for like a month or so. And then it'll come down and then maybe only a couple hours a week you're looking into them. And and then you're at a more sort of stable position to make a decision because then you, you've gone through that, overexcited like dopamine rush of, of wanting to get a new pet and now you can go okay now I can be more logical about this seriously what do I actually want what do I have space for what do I have money for you're not just jumping into because you could easily I mean especially with tarantulas it's even worse than reptiles you could end up with 20 tarantulas in your first month of doing research very easily and it would take Maybe up a do. small section of your desk yeah and I think you you nailed it perfectly as far as that it like <laughs> that that's it. They all of a sudden, yep, here we go. We're buying them up. This feels great. This feels great. And then unfortunately, we get some folks that they if they buy them up and don't do the research, they get tired of it quickly. And then you get the folks that it's a year in, they got 50 of them and they're trying to sell them off because they've gotten bored of the hobby, which is kind of a shame. Yes. Yeah. So it's better to start slow, start with one or two. Definitely. And kind of go from there. And and really try to hold to I mean, it's one of the things I've done whole podcasts on this, the fact that it is super addictive. It tends to attract folks with a more addictive, we talk about the collector gene, yes. folks that like to collect things. And I you know, shared my experiences even as a child, loved collecting things, whether it be stickers, cards, comic books, action figures. I still collect things other than Transformers. So I think it really, I mean, other than spiders, I got a huge Transformer collection. I'm a geek. And this appeals somewhat to that because there's a lot to learn about them. And then there's so many of them out there that you can get. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, it can be, it can be sinister if you're not paying attention to that. So yep. it's, it's super important. And, and and I always mention, like, you know, like to put the caveat in, 
I don't have any issues with somebody having a large collection. You know, there are many people, reptiles or tarantula. You know, I have I know people who have 150 snakes, and every single one is cared for really appropriately, and they're incredible. But most people aren't capable of that, and and most people end up in a position where, like you said, after a couple of years, they're just it's too much, and they got to they got to dump it. So you have to be very slow and know that there's different parts here. Like that collector gene is going to be coming on full tilt, and you got to just wait for it to calm down and simmer before you jump into it. And when you do jump into it and you start, you know, subscribing to different dealers and they send out their newsletters and they have their deals, it makes it so difficult. There's times where I just won't even open emails if I see one from a dealer because it's like I'm at a point right now where I'm at where I need to be at. I've got the ones I can the, the total number I've got right now I can care for properly the way I'd like to, and I know that, so I can't afford to be looking at new spiders right now. But it's tough sometimes because they're out there. <laughs> You're going to keep getting those emails. Thirty five percent off if you spend three hundred dollars. Like, oh, that's awesome! I can get like ten of them. And next thing you know, it you've got a collection that is no longer fun. It's a chore. And I've have heard from folks oh, yeah. that, that unfortunately they they're like, you know what? I don't know what to do. I realized the other day that I'd have a bad day at work and I'd go up to my tarantula room and I'd work with my spiders and it was like it helped me relieve stress. I felt comfortable. I felt calm. And now I'm dreading it because there's too many. It's taking up too much of my free time, and that's where it becomes a problem. Well, and, and even in the tarantula world, this is something that does not happen on the reptile side is freebies. Like when I first was exposed to freebies, yes. I didn't even understand the concept. I'm like, I don't get what does that mean? Freebies? I'm like, oh, they're going to send you a free spider with this order. Like, oh my God, that's how collections can probably get out of control. And it's like, you buy three, you get a free one. Why not get three? Mm-hmm. And so you can have four. It, it can be tricky. And I know for a fact, people like to get freebies. We'll order three in one order, get the freebie, try to order more on another order to get another freebie. It's, it's, it's funny you mentioned that too, because I originally, I kept snakes and you never got freebies, like you said. And I remember the first time I went to order, they're like, oh, you can get a freebie. I'm like, no, thank you. Yeah. Like, really? You can have anything? I'm like, no, I've just researched this thing to death. I have no idea what that freebie is. <laughs> you can keep it. So exactly. it, that is one. And that can get people in trouble too, because they'll often send people freebies that they don't feel like they're ready for. And then you get a whole nother level of stress. And I get the panicked emails. Hey, Tom, I just got my second spider and the freebie was a P. Murinus or OBT. What do I do? Yeah. Then you end up trying to talk them down. Like, you can do this. You can do this. So obviously you've done some research. It's been several months. You're starting to get an idea of what's out there, what's available, what, you know, appearance wise, behavior wise, what characteristics are you looking for in your first tarantula? Well, I I think the first question I would have for you is is because I'm still uneasy with them. I, I, for me, and this is what I do with my snakes as well. You know, I, I have boas and at the time I was not comfortable with a large snake. So I have, you know, have bought a neonate, you know, a little, you know, 50 yep, gram yep. snake, and it's been able to grow with me. And now I'm comfortable handling these large snakes. So with spiders, I feel like I need to start with a sling because I need to start with something small. I don't think I can start with a full grown adult. That's just too much. But is that too difficult? Like, is this, is that not recommended because of how sensitive uh, slings can be? Or what's your perspective there? It's all, and I always says, it's what you feel comfortable with. Having a background in exotics, I did a podcast a ways back because people were like, keeping snakes has nothing to do with keeping tarantulas. It, it, you gain nothing from it. Keeping reptiles has nothing to do with keeping tarantulas. So you'll gain nothing from it. I totally disagree. There is something about keeping, there are huge differences between exotic pets and your furry mammals, your cats, your dogs, your hamsters, your ferrets, a lot of different things that I do think prepare you for keeping tarantulas. I found that I was able to slide into the hobby very, very quickly and feel comfortable, even with an animal that I wasn't completely comfortable with because of some of my past experience. And some can work against you and we can talk about that a little later, but slings, the big thing with slings is they're tiny, depending on when you start with say a beginner species sling, 
those are usually the ones that take forever to mm-hmm. grow. So I, I would say that's the biggest issue I find with slings is when you have something, if you pick up some of the other, you know, the large tropical species, the Theraphosa or the like the Goliath bird eater, for example, that sling starts off at an inch and a half right off the bat with proper care within a year, you're talking about a five or six inch spider. So it's out of that fragile sling stage very quickly. And that makes people feel a little more confident when they see the thing putting on size quickly. The beginner species are usually much slower growing species. So you're talking about Brachypelma species, Aphonopelma species, um, Gramostola species. Those are your red knees, your red legs, mm-hmm. your Choco Golden Knees, some of my favorite spiders. But if you pick up a teeny, A, they're so tiny when they start off, it can give people fits. And B, we joke with some of these species, they molt and they almost seem smaller after they molt. It's like, that's like a running joke. Like mine was a half an inch, it molted and now it's a quarter inch. It does, they don't seem to grow for that first year. Now, somebody who already has patience and already has some experience with keeping other animals usually doesn't have a very difficult time with it because you have the wherewithal to recognize, all right, this is just going to be, it's going to be a long process. What ends up happening with some people is they buy the beginner species as slings, they get bored, and they immediately start picking up new ones because there's not much to do there. Right. So I would think with your background, you could definitely start off with a sling. It's just recognizing that it could be like some of the beginning. If you're looking at the true beginner species, there's a couple we can talk about that I think would be great for you. But uh, the actual beginner species that I usually recommend to A, younger kids, because I always, when I'm thinking beginner species... I'm thinking of something that a 10 or 12 year old young boy or young girl may be getting for the first time. Mm -hmm. So what's going to be safe for them? What's going to be easy for them with obviously some adult supervision? I also think about the person who's coming into the hobby that has may still harbor a phobia of them because that can play into. I've had folks tell me that they picked up a regular, a full size tarantula, an adult tarantula for their first and felt okay about it. And then they picked up a sling. And because of their fear of tarantulas, they were actually more scared of the sling or, or spiders. They were more scared of the sling than the actual full grown adult. And I can tell you, if, even from my own experience, the adults, I was more calm around the larger ones than I was the smaller ones for quite some time. So that's always something I try to bring up because people find that surprising. There's a lot of folks that get into tarantulas, have zero fear of tarantulas, and are still scared of just little jumping spiders or house spiders or you know, wolf spiders. So it, it, that's usually the last thing to go. The little ones still tend to freak people out. Interesting. Yeah. And for me, I don't think it's over a fear. Like, I mean, I'm fine moving spiders around the house and whatnot, but, and and I I am patient, but that's a good point too, is, is, you know, how long do you want to be? Obviously the sling is the sensitive stage. So if you're working with the beginner species, you're sort of extending that. So that's something to keep in mind for sure. And I had, I wonder if you're perspective on beginner species is similar to mine like because that happens in the reptile side all the time people are asking and there are people who have very definitive beginner species lists and then there are people who are say there's no such thing as a beginner species it's just the amount of research that you do and uh, i'm sort of in between because there are like when i think about my boas like those are such a great beginner species especially the dwarf boas because they stay small and they're very bulletproof and and you you give the keeper a window of, of opportunity to learn and you know but of course there are outliers who do crazy amounts of research and can jump in with something you know a very sensitive animal that requires very fine-tuned environment but so I, for me, it's, I'm, it's like kind of stuck between both worlds. I don't necessarily subscribe to the 100% beginner list. Like you cannot get another animal unless you have one of these first. But I also don't necessarily think that you know, not everybody has the capacity to do enough research. And, and like you said, hands-on experience is always going to be the best 
way to learn. So if you're jumping into something that's over your head, then it's going to be a really tough way to learn. I agree completely. And it's one of the things that I've, even from the get go, just watching how I kind of moved in, I got into the old world tarantulas, which are considered to be the advanced species because of the fact that they are, they lack eradicating hairs, new world species, ones from North America, South America, surrounding islands, kick hairs from their, their backsides when mm-hmm. they're as a defense mechanism. And the hairs are terrible. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're terrible. People tend to freak out more about the idea of a bite. And the old world species, the ones from across the seas, you know, Africa, Asia, the surrounding islands, the European species, Australia, those ones do not have those hairs. So if they're going to defend themselves, if they feel trapped, and granted, they really need to feel trapped. If they can't run, they're going to bite, and those bites hurt. And so I just want to explain that for people that may not get it. But the when I moved rather quickly into those, it didn't have a problem with it. But I do feel like I grew up around animals my whole life. I did have exotic. I've had reptiles. I had snakes for a long time. I feel that help. I don't – I think it's a very gray area. I think some people do need a beginner species list. I think that does benefit a lot of people and help a lot of people – pace themselves and ease their way into a hobby where they don't have the necessarily the background knowledge that somebody that's kept other exotics may have. I think there are folks that jump right in because they do the research and then they're at that point where they have the information. Now they need to actually have the spider and see how it works. Mm-hmm. And they do very well with that. So I do think I've, I did a podcast a while back about the whole beginner species list. And I do think they serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. There are folks out there that are coming in the hobby. They're terrified of them. You don't want to jump right in the deep end. I have had many people pick up some of, we'll call them the, you know, the more difficult beginner species. There's a few species that always get mentioned on beginners list that, I'm a little wary of suggesting to some people because they do grow a little more quickly. They are a little more high strung. They move more quickly. And I so one, the C. pubicins, the GBB. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. One, beautiful, beautiful spiders. I can't tell you how many folks that I've spoken to over the years that get one and they are freaked out by the speed. Like, I don't even want to open the enclosure anymore. It bolted. It, it freaked me out. It jumped at the prey in them and they get scared by it. And that's one that a lot of people recommend as a beginner species. So I think when it comes down to beginner species, beginner species list, it really, you have to take into account the individual, how much experience do they have keeping animals? Do they have any experience, experience keeping exotic animals? Are they afraid of spiders currently? And those come into play. So if you're checking no, I have no experience. Yes, I'm still a little scared of spiders. You definitely want to spend some time looking at those beginner lists. If you're somebody that has some experience, no fear of spiders, you may do well jumping in more on the deep end. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I so even even just listening to you talk about that, I think for me, see, I, 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 depending on, like you said, the type of person you are, you can handle certain things. For me, I think I would want a slow moving species. Now, I know that you know this you have to sort of disassociate the sling from the adult because that can be two totally different situations but just the speed of movement i know i would not be able to handle a fast moving even like you said a gbb even though it's like kind of a not the most advanced care but the fact that they have speed is going to freak me out so that's too much so i would want something that's a bit slower moving uh, definitely like medium to slow growth rate i'm totally fine with like letting them grow out a long time i mean i did the same thing with my snakes they're not growing super fast don't power feed or anything i'm i'm happy to let the animal grow at a, at a normal rate and it doesn't need to happen quickly so i think those would be two like key characteristics for me for sure is slow moving and and not a super fast growth rate 
And I think that's a great place to start. I mean, I usually talk about the three keys to picking a good beginner species temperament. Mm-hmm. How, you know, what are their temperament from? Are they, there are some that are new world species, but they are prone to kicking hairs really bad. <laughs> and that's not something somebody who's going to be getting into the hobby is really going to want to deal with right off the bat. And then speed's another one. I, I remember thinking I'd be okay with the speed. I heard about the speed. I'm like, oh, I've dealt with some fast snakes before I've dealt with other things. And the first time a spider bolted on me, and it was a little sling. It was like the world had ended. Like, yeah. holy crud, that thing could move. And you're still at that point, I'm still a little afraid of them. So it's like, oh my God. And it was an eye opener for me. And luckily that slowed me down a little bit. And I ended up, you know, I was eyeing some old worlds at that point. And I'm like, no, I've got to get my rehousings down. And so I slowed down a little bit. But I remember that's an eye opener. I think it's an eye opener for a lot of people because you can say something's fast until you actually experience it. And sadly, it means something might have went not quite as to plan that's when it really drives it home. Mm-hmm. And I think ease of husbandry and care is another thing. Some of the species out there, we, when we start talking about tarantulas, I think they are a lot easier to take care of than a lot of the reptiles out there. But there are ones that do require moisture. Although I find keeping moisture dependent species to be rather easy and straightforward, it's a scary thing for people first getting into the hobby. Yeah, And then price and availability is another one. I, I'll have people that will be like, oh, I've settled on my my one I'm going to get for my first tarantula. And it's one that's like slings cost 450 bucks. Oh, my God. That's going to be a you know a turnoff because this is your first spider. Granted, we want to make sure we do our research. We give it the best of care. But nothing turns people off to a hobby quicker than spending hundreds of dollars for a tiny little spider and then having it die on them. I've had so many folks that will be like, you know what? I tried it. I failed. I'm out of the hobby now. I can't. I was out of $250. And it's like, you want to start with something that's a little less expensive. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, and it's funny listening to you talk about the speed, you know, as an aspect of beginner species. And that's something I've experienced with my snakes is I, I started with boas and they're very slow. They're not very visual. They're they, they kind of, you know, a lot of heat sensing is, as far as they're concerned, they're they're not going to jump out at you. And then I've had them for years. And then recently I picked up a small Japanese rat snake and I'm just amazed Ooh. at how quickly this little thing <laughs> is. He's just so fast and he's very visual. He'll see you. He'll scoot across his enclosure. And I, I kept thinking if I had started with this, this would not have been a good start because I would have been jumpy around him. And now like, I don't care because I'm so used to snakes. But if yep. it was my first one, it would have been kind of a, a, a more of a scary experience, especially if you're coming in it with like a bit of uh, apprehension. And then I, the other thing that you said that I, I thought maybe I could ask you about is the eradicating hairs because when as a, as an outsider who's never experienced it, it always it always seems at least from my perspective, I'm like, oh, it can't really be that bad. But then when I hear people like you, people like my friend Dion uh, Reptiliatus, I'm sure some of the yep. the listeners will be familiar with him, and a few others are just like you do not want them kicking hairs at you. It's terrible. And so there's always this emphasis placed on how bad that is. So can you talk a little bit about what that's like? Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because I'm one that for years have tried to explain to people that don't poo-poo the hairs. It's like everybody is so worried about envenomation. And that's not even the most likely thing to happen. If you're keeping new world species, you there, there's a chance you're going to get hair. Now, the hairs, depending on – the problem with hairs is – Everybody is sensitive to different species. Right. So, for example, I the Lazidora parahybana, the salmon, uh, salmon bird eater, which is one of the big, big spiders out there, can get to be like 10 inches or so, even 11 inches. A lot of people get them because they're fairly beginner friendly to folks who want larger spiders. Those I got haired by one of those once. It was pretty awful. I had blisters all over my fingers. I had gotten some in my eye. My eye looked like it was just bleeding. Oh my gosh. It was nasty. And again, not 
the most horrific thing that's ever happened to me, but it was a wake up call that, Ooh, I really don't want this to happen again. I've spoken to other folks that have been haired by them. They're like, it was no problem whatsoever. It's a slight itch. So that's where it gets tricky is that you may find a species that absolutely tears you apart. I may have just slight itching like fiberglass dust. If anybody's ever been in an attic where there's fiberglass mm-hmm. insulation, I used to actually work on fiberglass boats. So I would come home with this stuff on me and it's that burning itching feeling. It's not very pleasant. Some of the beginner species, a lot of the beginner species, that's what you're going to feel. You're going to feel a little itching between your fingers, a little itching between your hand or on the backs of your hands or so, wherever the exposed skin is. It usually dissipates within a day or so. It's slightly unpleasant, but not anything you're going to go, oh my gosh, I'm never going to do that again. But then every once in a while, you get hit with something that it's like, woo. This 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 is not fun at all. I have a, a genus of tarantulas, Zenesta species, that they it's not terrible, but every time I go to feed or care for them, the back of my neck itches, the backs of my hands yeah. itch, usually for about 24 hours. And the problem with the urticating hairs is that after a while, you don't get more used to them. You supposedly become more sensitive. I was going to ask if there's an increased yeah. sensitivity. We see that a lot with there snake is. venom. Yep. It's it's one of those things I've spoken to keepers. I remember years ago, and it was a big wake up call because I wasn't really worried too much about the hairs. I'd gotten like some on. Usually, the only time I get any on me is when I'm cleaning up enclosures. They will sometimes cast off hairs when they molt. They'll sometimes just cast them off when you put them in a new enclosure. It's one of the things they do. So if you reach in and grab something out of the enclosure, you get some hairs on you. It wasn't bad. But then I talked to a keeper who'd been in the hobby for a lot longer than I had, and he couldn't even keep New World species anymore. He said he would walk into the room and itch. There was that level of sensitivity. And I think I don't want to overstate it because I think it's just something you want to keep in the back of your mind. Now, I've been doing this years. I'm exp- I'm in a room where there's hairs, there's molds, there's everything else. Knock on wood, it is not an issue for me right now. I Every once in a while, I'll get caught with some. The other day, I was pulling out a molt for a Theraphosa species, the Goliath bird eater. And when they molt, when they get bigger, they kick off all the hairs on their abdomens to protect themselves when they molt because in the wild, they'd be exposed. So if an animal came over sniffing, what's this? It's going to get this nose full of those hairs, which would be horrific. And when I went to take the molt out, I had gloves on, I had long sleeves on, I covered my face just in case. I took it out, immediately put it in water, thought I was good. And I was sitting downstairs watching a movie about an hour later. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, it was just everywhere. You could feel it. It wasn't terrible, but it was there. So I have allergies and I itch constantly (laughs) anyway. I have like really bad environmental allergies. So I'm kind of used to itching, but so I don't think it's as bad for me maybe as somebody who's not used to itching all the time. It could be kind of an annoyance. But for folks who keep a handful of them and or aren't getting into these big collections, don't have a room full of them, there's basic precautions you can take to avoid getting haired at all and therefore extending how long you can be in the hobby without worrying about it. Just putting on gloves and long sleeves when you're working with them, very simple solution to it. You shouldn't be getting them in your face unless they're really – if you have a fan in the room, that's something that could be a problem. I used to do – rehousings on my table, my dinner table, and we had a ceiling fan above it. And every once in a while, I'd forget to turn the ceiling fan off ahead of time. And that can kind of whip them up. And next thing you know, it, you'd be feeling itchy in the back of your neck and whatnot. But I think for most folks, it's not a real concern. Protect yourself with gloves and long sleeves if you're sensitive to that type of stuff. And you know, obviously, when you're doing any cleaning, same thing, and you should be in good shape. Okay. No, that's good to know. And so, so I think, yeah, so I think... Um, Getting back to the characteristics, slow moving, sort of medium to slow growth rate. I, I, I'm not looking for anything huge. Like I'm not looking for a bird eat or anything that's going to get super massive, especially not for the the first tarantula I get. Uh, another thing that I think maybe maybe tarantula keepers can't appreciate if they've only kept tarantulas is 
there's a there's a, a fascinating thing that happens when you keep tarantulas, and that's you get to watch them manipulate their environment and, and sort of act out these naturalistic behaviors, which is something that I talk about on the podcast all the time. Like we want to, if you've set up your enclosure properly, your animal will reward you with its fascinating natural behaviors. And that's what we want. We, we want to be able to sit and sit back and look at an enclosure and watch an animal do what it would do had it been in the wild. But tarantulas take that sort of to another level because of how capable they are of manipulating the environment, whether it's digging a burrow or webbing out uh, their enclosure. I think that is just so fascinating to me. And, and you don't necessarily get that on reptiles. And you're, you know, they're going to have like their little hides and, and they're going to climb in the trees and whatnot. But as far as like making a nest or and making an area for them, that's just not going to happen. And uh, I, I think, like I said, if, if you've only been keeping tarantulas, you may not really appreciate how amazing that is and how cool that is to be able to watch that on a daily basis and watch an animal take a completely basically bare enclosure with a few sticks and leaves and then coming back a couple months later and having this whole thing webbed out so for me part of part of what i would love to see is is that environmental manipulation whether it's you know a burrowing species or or a webbing species and i don't know if, if those fall into those beginner type categories but i think that is just such a fascinating part of tarantula keeping Oh, I agree completely. And I think that's one of the things when you set up tarantulas, when you start to recognize, and I've made changes over the years and how I keep many different species because I start to see different things like, wait a minute, if I given this one more substrate, would it have continued to burrow? Like a lot of times we talk about terrestrial species and true in the wild, a lot of them are opportunistic where they'll find a place under roots. They'll find a place under a rock. They'll dig it out a little bit and they'll have a little burrow there. And I think for years we just read that as, okay, put a couple inches of dirt in, put a little hide in there and it'll be fine. Mm. And a lot of them don't register that as the appropriate environment. And so you just kind of get a spider that sits there. So there are, the thing is with the beginner species, a lot of folks, there are obviously fossorial species. Those are the ones that will do the burrowing. They'll, some of them do amazing burrows. And the problem is those are the ones that a lot of folks new to the hobby get bored with right. quickly because if it's kept correctly, you're not going to see much of your spider. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten in discussions with people before that will pick up species that they know are fossorial and they will put them in shallow enclosures. And usually what will happen is if they are not able to burrow, they will instead web up. They'll web up the whole enclosure and kind of create their own burrow from webbing. And when you put them in a shallow enclosure, what happens is every time you take the top off of that enclosure, you have a spider that now feels like you just ripped the top off its house. It's exposed. And then you get that quote unquote aggressive behavior that people talk about. So a lot of times with beginners, we don't usually encourage or we, we, you can talk about them, but we usually tell somebody to try something that's going to be a little more visible mm -hmm. because they get bored of that behavior. And then unfortunately, as far as web, there is, I love heavily webbing spiders. I've recently gotten into Diploridae or curtain web spiders that are just these enormous, they're not true spiders, they're relatives to tarantulas. And they web, you put a spider in and come 24 hours later, that thing has done more webbing than some of my tarantulas will do in a year. Really? And they just web and web. And it's beautiful to watch them start to create their different entrances and exits from the burrow. When you go to feed them, you're never quite sure where the spider is going to pop out of. I love that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, there's only a handful of the quote unquote beginner species, the slower ones that do that much webbing. A lot of the ones that are considered beginner species or a lot of the slower growing ones the Afonapelma, Brachypelma, Gramostola, they'll do a little bit of webbing. They're your quintessential, for lack of a better term, we call them pet rocks. Right. They're going to sit in the enclosure. I've given, I've experimented with these guys. I've given them room to burrow. I've given them huge starter burrows. I've had them go ahead and fill the starter burrows back in like, yeah, buddy, I don't need this. <laughs> and they just sit right in the, out in the open. As far as, you know, 
One that I would think of, we talked about it earlier, as far as you know, heavily webbing a spider that's really going to take control of its environment if you set it upright and do some neat stuff. The C. cyanopubicins is one that is on the more difficult end of the beginner list because it is their medium medium growth rate, which is good because a lot of folks, I think, grow with them. And it's always nice when you get a spider that a slow growing spider, you don't learn all that much about. You, it takes them so long to reach that size where they might be a handful that most people have already picked up a bunch of other spiders besides that. And you don't really gain anything from the experience. With the medium ones, you can kind of grow with them. They're going to grow at a decent clip and you're going to kind of get to grow with them. You're going to do some rehousings with mm-hmm. them. They are a little faster than some of the other species on there, but they web beautifully. I've had two, unfortunately, had two old ladies that recently passed from old age that were some of the first I got and to watch what they did their enclosures. It's amazing. So it's tough because I, I have a lot of times, and again, you have to know what you're, you're feel comfortable with. And if you don't want to, one that might be faster growing, then it's kind of limited. But I think the problem is with the hobby, like you said, you go out there and there's so many beautiful spiders and you start going, hey, I want a blue one. And then you realize the majority of blue ones aren't ones that most beginners start right. with. Or, hey, I want a, you know, a burrowing one. Um, Fonapelma simani is one you may look into. They're often included on beginner lists. I think it's the zebra tarantula. This was actually the second tarantula I ever got, ever got in my life. It was back in the 90s. And unfortunately, back then I bought from a reptile dealer and he gave me a mature male. So the thing lasted like a year and a half. I thought I killed it and come to find out it was a male. But they're ones that sometimes when you get them will continue that burrowing behavior into adulthood. They'll create some amazing burrows. I have one that has a beautiful vertical burrow in her enclosure. She'll hide down there. So that's one to think about if you want to see something that'll do some of that burrowing behavior. And they're also usually fairly visible. Yeah. Okay. What about... um what about Caribbean Versicolor? Would that be, is that too much for, knew, for a beginner? I knew that was coming up. Okay. okay. So here's the thing with Caribbean Versicolor. This is a tricky one. And I've been talking about these for a long time. They, on the surface, they are amazing beginners, amazing beginner species. Over the years, I have had more reports of people having their Caribbean Versicolors mysteriously die than any other species right. of spider. Right. I also recently did a poll where it's like, what was, what is the one species? Everybody's got this one species of tarantula that they, for some reason or other, struggle with. And Caribbean Versicolor was, you added all the rest of them, the, the votes together, and I think it still wasn't as high as Caribbean Versicolor. I've had very good luck with mine. I think somebody that is confident enough in hearing good husbandry information and going by it will do fine with them. The problem is they come from an area, and this is where it can get tricky with tarantulas because we talk about looking at their natural environments. What it, What is the, you know, the, what is the humidity where they're at? What are the temperatures? And we read this and we go, all right, it comes from a place that's super humid, comes from a place that's super high temperatures. So we got to make sure we keep it really moist and we got to make sure that the temperatures are up. And unfortunately, a lot of times what that does is create an environment for the spider that's stuffy and the spiders end up dying. Yeah. So for years, people have moved away from that. And it's one of those weird spots where if you look on paper where they come from, this is how it should be kept. But if you're going to keep them in captivity, this is what you want to do. So I've had really good luck with mine over the years by keeping them on the drier side, water dishes, dribbling water on their webbing. They do web beautifully. And they are one that when you do a list of beginner species, they always make that list. It's just they're a lot more finicky in terms of you know, the care you provide them. Right. There's some species out there that you could keep, your room could be 60 degrees all year long. You could feed them once every six months. They're going to do perfectly fine. 
These guys, it's a much narrower band when it comes to correct husbandry. And I think what happens more often than not, we talk about a lot in the tarantula hobby nowadays, over caring for your spiders. When you freak out because you see something it means you think means the spider is not doing well and you kind of overdo it. You go, oh my gosh, my spider's looking a little lethargic today. I must not have enough humidity in there. And all of a sudden you pour a bunch of water in there and now you create this kind of dank environment. And now your spider really is lethargic because it's not getting good air quality, things of that nature. And I think this is one of those species that people naturally freak out about because they're going to, if you do research, you're going to hear a ton of stories about how difficult they are to keep. But I also believe that people go in and they trust the husbandry information they got. They keep them correctly. They don't overdo it with the humidity. They don't overdo it with the moisture. They give them good ventilation. You can do just fine with them. Yeah. Well, that's something that we see on the reptile side too, where people, to achieve a high level of humidity, they sacrifice ventilation, which is something that I always say don't do. Because if you're you're sealing off the environment, that's not really a good way of achieving high high humidity. Obviously, you're creating, like you said, a dank environment. You're creating a, a breeding ground for bacteria. So if you are needing humidity, you need to achieve a humid air, humid air, while simultaneously providing the same amount of ventilation yep. that you would on more and and you know more arid species. You know, it's it's got to be the same amount of airflow. Exactly, and what we found with some of them is the humidity, like a water dish, an open water dish, is enough to just raise the inside of that enough. You still got your your cross ventilation. That's very very important. You still got the airflow. And they do just fine. It's just, and that's one of the reasons why I always kind of cringe every time because they're, we always talk about tarantula care sheets. People will come out and they'll read where the tarantula comes from. They'll go, this tarantula needs to be kept at 85 degrees. It needs to be kept at 85% humidity. Anybody that's trying to maintain those levels in their collection is probably going to end up with dead spiders yeah. because it's very difficult to do. And we don't take into account the fact that in some places like Caribbean Versicolor, there's breezes. They've people that have been where they are. There's breezes circulating that air at all times. So you should have probably a fan in your room moving air around. They don't talk about the fact that some of the species that live in areas where it gets to be 90 degrees, like I had somebody tell me, I got this thing up to 90 degrees, but it doesn't look good. That's because the animal burrows into a burrow that is probably about 66, 67 degrees at all times. It, It avoids that. They don't temperature regulate like a reptile will where they go out and have to, you know, heat their body temperatures up to digest. They basically go into burrows to either avoid extreme heat or avoid extreme cold. It's a lot different. So I think that's where we start struggling when we run into, you know, when we start looking up what their care is online and we start looking where they're coming from. We don't look at the big picture. Yes. As, yeah. People take the temperature readings from the local airport where it's just yeah. you know, asphalt everywhere and they're like, oh, it's got to make it, exactly. put the heat lamp on it and roast it. Yeah. That's, it's, it's so similar to, to reptile keeping. And so, so as far for, Compared to the GBB, what as far as speed goes, is the C versicolor as fast, or would you say it's a little bit slower? It's a little bit. I would say the, the slings can be they can boogie, and and the one thing that needs to be out there is any sling can be fast. I think this is sometimes where people we a lot of times when we talk about an animal's temperament, we talk about an adult animal. A lot of the ones that people will talk about being very tractable are ones that, yes, they are a little more open to being handled when they're older. They tend to be a little more laid back, a little calmer, less fast. But a sling is going to be fast regardless of the species. So that's always got to be in the back of your mind. Slings can boogie. I've had little teeny slings of Rocky Palm, you know, the Mexican redney that will really fly on you. It's not, they only go, they've got spider speed. They don't go very far usually, and then they, they stop. But that's something that always needs to be out there because I have people that will read, hey, this spider supposedly moves very slowly, but my spider just boogie. Yeah, all slings, juveniles even. That's some of the the most 
skittish spiders you'll find are ones that are in the juvenile stage because that's when they're in if they're in the wild they're much more visible they're larger they're going to be hunting more actively out in the open and if something's flying over them or coming near them it's usually going to be a predator and their first line of defense is to get out of there as quickly as yeah. possible so you're going that's where you're going to see a lot of your species start to kick hairs i've had species that start off the slings they're totally laid back and then they hit that juvenile stage and holy geez, and then they hit the young adult stage and they're fine. So that's always something that needs to be kept in the back of your mind. But as far as versicolor slings, I've had uh, versicolors, the slings are usually, once they start webbing up, they're pretty stationary. They will web themselves little areas and they usually stay right in those areas. As adults, they're usually fairly calm. My female that I had uh, that just passed, again, another older spider, that's when I uh, bred and produced slings from, she was a little wacky. Not, I never had any issues with her. She would sit in her enclosure. I dropped crickets in. She was fine, but not definitely not a spider I'd want to hold. And again, if you allow them, if you set up their enclosures right, you give them a lot of places to web to, fake foliage, real foliage even, they're going to web up. They're going to retreat to that webbing rather than bolts. So you shouldn't have a problem mm, with them. Okay. And one other thing that I, I should have mentioned at the very beginning, and this is something that you taught me last time we spoke back in 2019, which is probably the, one of the only things that really started to lead me down this path was I am not interested in holding tarantulas at all, really. Maybe one day that would change, not but yet. not at all. And I remember you telling me that last time when I had you on, you're like, no, you don't have to hold. There's actually no point in your keeping of a tarantula that you will be required to hold it unless, you know, even if something goes wrong, you're using catch cups and what's not. And that, that was such a relief to me. And so for the listeners, I'm not looking for somebody that, you know, a tarantula to sit on my shoulder. I, I don't even really hold my snakes that much. You know, I pull them out to do maintenance and stuff, but I'm not somebody that likes to interact with things physically in that way. I, I love to watch and definitely that'll be the same for, for tarantulas. And, and I'm glad you brought that up too. Cause again, I put it out there because a lot of times, and that's one of the reasons going back to the whole beginner list question, a lot of folks that come into the hobby as beginners are, are think that they have to handle. They think it's part of the hobby, right. and it's not. And then some of them find out it's not, and they still want to do it. And I kind of I don't get into either side. I personally don't handle. I've I've handled. I've had situations where a spider's crawled out into my hand. I never put it on like my YouTube videos or anything because I'm not trying to promote it. And anytime you handle, you're at risk and the spider's at risk. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. People be like, oh, this one's super, super docile. I've had people that have super docile tarantulas. They molt and suddenly their personalities change. It's not like a dog where once it's tamed down, it's going to be your best friend for life. It's going to be, you could have a spider that for a couple of years is the most gentle thing you've ever had. And then it molts and for some reason a switch flips and it's not able to be handled anymore. So that's always got to be in the back of your mind. Again, I get why people do it. I don't chastise people that do it. I, if people ask me how to handle, I say there's people out there that will show you the correct way to do it. It's not something I do, but I do have to with working with so many beginners keep that in the back of my mind that that's, that's an actual thing that people expect to do. A lot of them come into it wanting to do mm -hmm. it. We've talked about people that for me, I, the first one I ever handled was huge because that was, for me, that was the spot where I was no longer scared of spiders. I could recognize it was amazing. And it was like an experience that I wouldn't take back for the world, but as much as it was done safely, God forbid that spider had bit me or something, who knows what would happen. So that's always got to be in the back of your mind. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I have uh Three other species that maybe I'll I'll mention that I were also kind of in my running, and uh, you can let me know what you think. So the first, okay. I mean, we've already kind of mentioned Brachypelma, but I, I do love Brachypelma smithy. I think that's such a cool looking spider and hobby stable. Yeah, yep. and yeah, and it is. It's funny because it is sort of a hobby stable, and and when you know if you Google tarantula, that's probably the species that's going to come up. And I, I think sometimes 
it's kind of like the corn snake in the reptile world. You you realize it, they become so mundane because you see them all the time. You actually forget how beautiful it is to have a red rat snake. Like that is amazing, and you sort of kind of become overexposed to it, and then not see the beauty in it. So when I look at a brachypalmus smithy, I'm like, wow, that's a that's an amazing animal. Obviously, you were dealing with slow growth rate there. And the, the, another one that I was going to ask you about too is Aegeniculata. I know that's a larger species, but that's a pretty interesting one. And then the third one was I think it's Nandu. Is it chromatis? Chromatis. Or, uh, chromatis. Yep. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll just let you run on on those. I'm taking notes now because I know I'm going to forget. But what's funny? But let's start with Aegeniculata. <clears throat> Hearing you talk at the beginning, I had actually taken a note. Aegeniculata? Question mark. That would be one of the spiders that I would recommend to somebody who has some, you know, has worked with exotics before. Doesn't have a fear of spiders. Wants a beautiful spider. Isn't going to get overly huge. I don't know what you read about them. A lot of folks say they get super super big six inches, seven inches around that area, which is a big spider, don't get me wrong, but not much bigger than some of the other beginner species they have out there. Awesome eaters, great growth rate, but if you choose a less aggressive feeding schedule, like if you're feeding yours every two weeks, you can easily get slower growth and kind of grow with the spider and just bulletproof as far as husbandry is concerned. They're very, very easy to care for. And it's funny story, the first time I did a beginner species list on YouTube, I left, and I did one for my website, I left the species off because I had kept them. I had talked to people. They were kind of spooked by the fact that they get big, they can get big quickly, especially a lot of what will happen is a lot of people that just start keeping tarantulas, they feed very aggressively. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to get a spider that grows very, very quickly because they're feeding it every two or three days because they just enjoy Part of the fun of tarantulas is watching them eat and hunt. So I kept it off because they can be a little bit folks would talk about them being aggressive, defensive. I think the thing is they just have amazing feeding responses. I have a big female that will just sit there looking beautiful. I open the enclosure. She may move a couple steps, but then she just kind of sits there. And then you drop a prey at them in and holy gee. So I would definitely say that's a great one to start with for somebody who is, you know, watch one isn't going to grow too, too quickly, who has some experience, who doesn't have a fear of them, who can respect the fact that a animal with a good feeding response isn't necessarily a defensive or an aggressive animal. And a beautiful species too. Gorgeous. Absolutely. And it's funny because I had one years ago. We actually talked about one of the species I brought up on when you interviewed me was the, I believe it was a Brocklehursty, Acanthoscuria Brocklehursty, which was sold in the hobby for a while and I had one. And it turned out the Brocklehursty was just a different color variation of the Aegeniculata. We were selling something in the hobby that wasn't the right species. So it ended up, I just had an Aegeniculata and I love that spider. It was, it grew decently fast. It was a male. And even as a male, males can be very, obviously male spiders their main job after maturing is to find a lady. So they can be very jumpy. They're they're the ones that are out traveling, trying to find the females. So they're predated on much more. They can be, you know, very restless. This guy was just a dream. I sent him off to pair. Unfortunately, I don't think it worked, but he lived a very long life. Awesome spider. I have a female now that I got at a pet expo, I think in the summer, who is molted two times my care. She's probably about five and a half, six inches now. Gorgeous, gorgeous spider. One of those ones too, that if you want to experiment with a, an enclosure that has live plants in it, or really put something together really nice, they seem to be open to that. And then I have a sling that I got about a year ago that just molted. I'm looking at her now and she's got to get a rehousing. She's about three inches or so. 
And again, awesome spiders. Yeah. Okay. So that's definitely in the top running because they are cool. And, and that's nice to hear that they don't get massive because that was something that you always Google and then, but you, you got yeah. to take everything on Google with a grain of salt, but you're looking at like, oh, it's like a bird eater basically. And I'm like, I don't want anything 10 inches. No. It, and it's, it, it's, it's a beefy spider. They're beefy spiders. And I've seen pictures of ones that are, and mind you, they're spiders that are like 12 years old. That's right. the other yes. thing is that we sometimes forget to mention. Sure. Can this species get to be 10, in, uh, 10 inches across? Like if you talk, not this one, like certain species, they're like, oh, 10 inches, 11 inches. Can they get there? A, it's not particularly common. And B, the ones that do are old. So you're talking about, it could be eight, nine, 10 years down the road where you get one that's that, that's that big and you have grown with her. You have rehoused her a couple of times. You have worked with her. It's not going to be as big of a deal. It's not like you start. I think some people picture it like, all right, I got this little teeny sling and now all of a sudden I got this 12 inch spider. Yeah. It doesn't really work that way except if it's a therapeutic. So those grow very, very quickly. So yeah, I would say Acanthoscuria geniculata was one of the ones I was thinking of beforehand. And then as you were talking, I'm like, maybe the only thing that, I mean, size-wise, not a big deal. Growth, you're going to get, the nice thing is you're going to start with a little sling. And before you know it, it's going to start showing those colors and they are stunning. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of nice to kind of quickly go through the sling stage, especially if you're kind of getting comfortable with it. And, 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 you know, and I'm, I could totally see how people would end up over, not maybe not, maybe overfeeding is the wrong term, but you know, feeding them to the point where they grow quite quickly. Where you know, I, I work with boas, so I'm you know working with animals that eat eight times a year type thing, and they won't eat for three months yep. during the winter. So I'm already used to you know, like you said, not over caring for an animal. It's like just because you eat three times a day doesn't mean your spider needs to eat. Doesn't all the time. mean they need to. And I think part of it is a lot of folks that struggle with that aspect of it are ones that are just coming right. They've never kept an exotic before. I kept snakes. So I knew that I, same thing. I did not overfeed my snakes. I was not trying to power feed them and get them to grow faster. So when I moved in the hobby, it was easy for me to realize that they don't need to be fed that much at all. Where you fall into the trap is you get some that are just so much fun to watch on. Right. Yes. (laughs) You're sitting there, you're feeding, you know, you don't need to feed this one, but you know what? Darn it. I want to watch this one eat. And that's where people sometimes get into trouble. Even the ones that know that they don't need to eat that much is that it is, it's look how many feeding videos there are. My my most popular videos I put up a lot of times are a feeding video. People love watching them eat and hunt. And that's where you get the situation where you get a spider that, you know, it eats. And then you have a pre-molt period that's like eight months long and you think your spider's broken because it's not molting. Right. Exactly. All right, so what you mentioned, Nandu chromatis. Yes, yeah, that was a species that I only recently kind of come across, so I don't know a ton about it, but I just thought it looked quite nice. Very similar to the geniculata, almost the same sort of pattern. Same sort of pattern. It's got the nice bright red booty on it. It's more of the coloration of it. It's hard. It's almost like a bone white. There's something – I love black, white, gray spiders. Like they're – I think they're totally underappreciated in the hobby. This one, it's more of it like – I, I don't know how to, you have to see them in part like grayish bone kind of color, like a little brownish tinge with that red, but they're gorgeous spiders. Another one that grows, I, I would say mine grew. I've raised two of them. Again, one of them was a male. Then I have my female now. The They grow a little bit more slowly than the geniculata, but you're going to get decent growth on them. So one that you're not going to have to, you know, it, it won't be 10 years from now when you're looking at a spider or a, a tarantula. They are can be a little more, skittish than geniculata i found mine i've had a couple of them a little more skittish the hairs on them i've heard are particularly nasty 
I've never had an issue with mine. Mine is not that she's kicked hairs maybe twice. It wasn't a big deal. So I wouldn't think that's a big concern. And I found that mine do a little more burrowing. Mine enjoyed having a burrow. Mine burrowed as a sling. As a juvenile, she burrowed. As an adult, I put her into an enclosure that had several inches of substrate, kind of gave her a starter burrow. She dug the whole thing out and she uses that. But right now I'm looking over at her and she's sitting right out in the open. So Another spider, very similar to the geniculata, very similar in care, probably just a little more skittish than a geniculata. Okay. Okay. So that's a good option as well then. I love it. it, it I told the story years ago. I fell in love with this spider very early on and uh, I found somebody that was selling their collection and they had a six inch female and she sent pictures of her. It was just the most gorgeous spider I'd ever seen. And we were ordering around wintertime. So we shipped them out. I was asking the girl to wait till it got a little warmer. And she's like, oh, no, it's fine. I can ship them out. No problem. Well, she shipped, shipped the spiders out. Long story short, right after Christmas, Christmas break, my kids, family are all around the dinner table. We pop open the box and she didn't put a heat pack oh in my it. God. It hit 20 degrees that night. So I unpackaged, I think, six dead tarantulas, including this beautiful six-inch female. Wow. So. It was awful. It was the kids are sitting there and we're pulling them out one at a time. And I'm like, all right, guys, you might want to step away. This is just sad. It was awful. And so for years, I wanted to get another one. I saw this female and it was just the most beautiful spider. So I finally picked up, I had a sling that turned out to be a male and I wanted a female. So I picked up another one that was like about an inch and a half juvenile. And it was the craziest behavior I'd ever seen because I was feeding her and she seemed to be eating. And then I noticed there were little flies, little gnats around one of the enclosures. So I'm like, where are these gnats coming from? I don't understand this. So I'm checking. There's no boluses, anything. I open her enclosure. They seem to be coming from hers. They're everywhere. What is happening here? So I dig up. I see them coming around a corner. I dig up the corner. She had been taking the crickets I had been giving her, eating their heads off, and then burying the bodies. Wow. It was the weirdest to date. I've never, we, it, it, it certainly endeared her to me being a fan of horror movies and stuff. It's like this crazy woman is beheading these, <laughs> these crickets and burying them. So it, it ended up, there was like four or five of them there. We took them out. And then after that, I started pre-killing, dropping them in front of her and watching her eat. And she, for some reason after that, she never did it again. But since that point, I just had a certain affinity for it because it was just the craziest behavior ever. And now she's a big grown up girl. Absolutely gorgeous spiders. One of my favorites. Okay, cool. Okay. That's an, that's, that's another great option. And then and what about Brachypelma? I know there's obviously several different species of Brachypelma and one of the downsides is the, the slow growth rate, but they still seem like such a great option for a, a newbie. They really are. And they're, it, I will never stop recommending them to people who are new to the hobby. The biggest issue I can say with those is, and I don't know what you guys have available up there. Down here, it can be difficult sometimes to find larger specimens. Usually when I recommend somebody a brachypelma, I ask them to try to find one that's well started because they start off super, super tiny. And the problem with those slow growing species, I found in my experience, it takes them forever to get to like an inch or an inch and a quarter. So is that what you would classify and, as a well-started, something around an inch? Well, well-started, three quarters of an inch. Okay. If you could find a, one of those, three quarters of an inch, that's a great place to start because it's a, it's an okay, it's not going to be a huge spider, but it's still pretty small sling and you're going to see better growth as you go because usually right around the inch, I don't know what it is with them and it seems to be the same thing with the Fonapelma species or the Gramostolus species, once they hit that inch mark, they start putting on size. They molt a little more frequently, and they seem to put on a bit more size each time. So it'll take you forever to go from like a second instar sling to an inch, inch and a quarter. And then all of a sudden, in half that time, you've got a three-inch spider showing its adult colors. 
So if if you can't find one, you can definitely work with the teeny tiny slings. There's just some challenges with them. A lot of it's trying to find prey items that are small enough for it. And then recognizing it could be several years before you're actually seeing a spider that is showing anywhere near its adult colors. Okay. But they are, I love them. I have two. When I first brought my Brachypelma smithy a while ago, it was a sex female, about three inches. Couldn't wait to get one. It was the first li- the first tarantula I'd ever seen as like right in front of me as a, as a child was a Brachypelma smithy. And then several years later, Somebody realized that the species that they've been selling in the hobby for years is the Brachypelma smithy was actually the Brachypelma homoria. Right. And that the real smithy had been sold under Anitha, I believe it was. And so they made Anitha a pseudonym of smithy. And now they're selling real smithies in the hobby. And I'm growing them up and being able to compare them. And they're they're beautiful. I mean, they're so similar looking, but the smithies are just super vibrant. I just had two juveniles that molted. They're probably pushing three and a half inches now, just stunning spiders. And they're calming down a bit, which is nice because they will go through. I found that mine all went through kind of a kicky stage, but it's more cute. Like yeah, yeah. that's you. They're, they're three inches. They, they freeze up. They kick a little hair. You go, oh, look at you. And you drop your cricket and you're on your way. You're good. But Definitely. I mean, I will never stop recommending them. I remember there was a period where people were kind of getting bored of them a little bit because I love the corn snake analogy because I love corn snakes. And I remember people like, oh, yeah, corn snakes. Everybody's got corn snakes. They're gorgeous. Who cares? Yeah. And it was kind of like that with them where people were saying, oh, I don't want to brag. Everybody's got Brocky Pelma Smithy. Well, yeah, everybody's got Brocky Pelma Smithy because they're amazing spiders and they're like the spider of the hobby. So would definitely that with that one, if you can find a well-started specimen. Granted, it's probably going to be more expensive. It's pricey because if somebody's got one that's an inch, it means they spent several years getting it to right. an inch. But even if you can't, if you can find a little one, they're very, very, very durable as far as spiders are concerned. They don't have huge moisture requirements. They can dry out a little bit as slings. And again, the the only issue will be trying to find the prey for them. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to beat the contrast. And all three of those species really have such a beautiful contrast in their coloration. And one other thing that popped into my head too, this would be for any other person who's listening, who's a beginner. And this is advice that I give to reptile keepers is, and we kind of vaguely mentioned it earlier is pick species that have similar requirements to the climate that you live in. You know, that's a regret that I have with my own animals with, with, I I keep a lot of tropical species, but I live in, in Manitoba, Canada. So uh, six months of the year is winter and six months of the year means that there's absolutely zero humidity in my house because we run heat all the time. So that the relative humidity will drop to like 10% in my, in my basement. And uh, then that's a giant challenge for me all the time. Every morning I'm waking up, misting everything, making sure the humidity is there. And as a beginner, and this is what I'll probably be doing with, with tarantulas. And this is what I'll recommend to anybody is look at your climate. Do you have a high relative? Or do you live in Florida? Maybe you can manage having a more you know humid loving species a lot easier than someone like myself. So anyway, that's just a little tangent that I thought I would throw in there. No, and it's a great one because I actually just did. I do this thing occasionally where I do like a tarantula keeping test, and one of the questions on it was about recognizing where you're at, what your relative humidity is. Because the other thing we have is people will look at the moisture dependent species. And they're living in Florida where their humidity, you know, I've had people contact me. Yeah, I keep it in a, not, in a room that's not air conditioned. It's hot, it's humid, and I'm pouring all this water in. Stop. You don't need to yeah. do that. You have the perfect environment. I have a lot of folks from the Philippines. Philippines is the absolute perfect environment in terms of the heat that they get, 
the humidity they have there, you're not going to have to do much a water dish and you're good to go. I think I live in Connecticut where we have, you know, pretty decent winters again, half the year, not quite half the year, but a good portion of the year we have the heat running. It dries out the room. I do run a humidifier. There are ways to get around it, but that means a lot more work, a lot more research, a lot more experimentation. And that's where people new to the hobby start to fall down because they're like, I don't know what to do here. My, I, purchases animal in the summer. Like if I bought something in the summer, it can be very humid here. So we have a really, it could be, you know, my tarantula room could be 75% humidity. It could be 85 degrees. Everybody's going to be nice and comfortable up here. And so if I'm new to the hobby and I buy a bunch of spiders and I set them up in those conditions in that environment, that's great. But then the winter comes in and suddenly I come up and realize that the humidity in the tarantula room has dipped down to 12%. Now we have a problem. Now we got to be more diligent as far as making sure that those enclosures are, you know, adequately moist. They have water dishes that the ones that need moisture have moist substrate. And a lot of folks will find all of a sudden that the collection that they had that was easy to take care of. Now they're spending a lot more time fixating on because they're afraid that they're going to dry out. Yeah. You know, one, one idea that I had is I have a four foot PVC enclosure, like that's just a classic snake enclosure that's empty. I, I, I won't be using it anymore. And I, I'm in the wintertime, I may use that as a second, you know, not as an enclosure, but put this, the spiders in there, in, in their own individual yep. enclosures, obviously, like whatever they're in their tubs or their vials or whatever it is, and use that as like a humid chamber almost because it, it, when it does get dry, it's very difficult to control the humidity in an entire room, especially if you have the furnace blasting. Yep. But if I have a small, basically four by two thing that I can maybe put a large water pan in there and rel- you know, boost the relative humidity up to 70% in there, then that will simplify my life a little bit, I think. That is perfect. And that's what I usually do with my slings. I have my slings in plastic containers that I can easily move around. I put them in larger containers. We just, even an open cup of water is enough. If you put a hygrometer in there, you'll see it raises it just enough. It's got to have ventilation. Yep. That's the important thing. I've, I've had people do this and they put it like I had one guy that poor dude got a big Tupperware container, put the, all the slings in it, put a big thing of water in it, capped it. He never put ventilation holes. So just sealed He's it. He's like, I don't get it. They're they're dropping dead. I don't understand what's happening. So I said, well, send me some pictures of what you're doing. What are, what are you looking at? And I'm like, are there ventilation holes in that? And he's like, no, that will let the humidity out. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. There's where it went wrong. So yeah, that's something I've done. I love it. You don't need extra heat. You don't need, I mean, if the good thing about tarantulas, a lot of them come, especially the species that are on the beginner species list, they experience lower temps in the wild. So you don't have to go nuts. I think where people freak out is they read, oh, it's a sling. It needs extra heat. No, it doesn't. Most cases, if your temperatures in your home are 65 degrees, 70 degrees, you're perfectly fine. The one thing you might find is they might not grow as quickly but they're perfectly fine. They don't act any different. They're not like huddled up like they're cold. It's it's just, they're not going to grow as quickly. Yeah. Maybe now we could uh, jump into a few of my care questions. Absolutely. So I, I know that you had, you had uh, just talked to Dr. Anderson about this, so maybe we don't need to go into it to too detail, but as far as water, and maybe this is like slightly different between slings and having an adult, but a, I guess my first question is how often are you changing water and is when you have slings, you know, a lot of them are so small, you probably don't have a water dish. Are you just misting to, to keep the moisture up for them? I don't do a lot. I'm one of those ones that I, I use misting. There's people out there that say misting is completely useless. I disagree. I think it has a time and a place for it. With slings, it depends on what you're keeping them in. If I usually like to use either a pipette or a syringe and I keep the bottom levels of the substrate and slings moist at all times. And what that allows for, slings can drink right out of the soil. That's one of those things. You put a little pinch. You can also put a, a little pinch of sphagnum moss in there. Keep that moist. I've seen my slings come out of the burrows, go right over the sphagnum moss, drink out of it. You can put in little water dishes. Sometimes, I, I, if you can fit a dish in there, get a little dish in there, anything helps. 
I've found that a lot of times when you keep teeny tiny slings, you use dram vials, people look at them and go, oh, you're keeping them something so tiny. You're trying to create that little micro environment for that spider. And that's one of the easiest things, ways to do it. You keep them in a smaller vial, substrate in the bottom, you keep it moist. You can allow the top to dry up a little bit. And a lot of slings will burrow. And what that does is allow the sling to burrow to the moisture level it needs. So I've had slings that you put in, if you put them in a, a container, which is all dry substrate, they'll sit there right on the top. Then I'd make a little hole on the side just for like an experiment and pour some water down there. So like maybe the bottom half an inch is moist and you come back the next day, things burrowed all the way down the bottom. That's, that's a sling that's burrowing to the moisture level it needs. So with slings, if you put them in something a little bit, it depends. If you're getting a little teeny tiny bee smithy, I would definitely keep it in something small so that you can keep track of the spider. I don't think people realize how small a quarter of an inch can be. I've had people, you know, go, I, I think there's something wrong. I got the spider. It says it's a quarter of an inch. I can't see it. Well, that's a quarter of an inch <laughs> yeah. spider because we usually measure the diagonal leg span on them. And a quarter inch diagonal leg span means a little teeny tiny body. So you want something that you can keep track of the sling in to keep, make sure that it's getting its food, make sure it gets what it needs, make sure it can find food. So when you're using a smaller container, it's usually easy to get away without using water disc. But I've had people use anything for Legos is a big popular one. They take the little round Legos and they plant them in the substrate oh, cool. and then they fill those with water. As far as larger specimens, everything gets a water dish here. I usually change or check the water dishes once a week. Is usually that's one of the things Dr. Andy Anderson and I agreed on when we were going through. He does the same thing once a week when I do my maintenance and go through them all. I take everybody down. I pull out boluses. I feed some of them. Other ones I just go through, clean out the water dish. I like using souffle cups for some of the water dishes because I have certain spiders that will either web over their water dishes. A lot of spiders in the wild, if there's a source of water, that's where they know they can dump their garbage, their boluses, or remains from the food prey, their molts, they'll drop in water because they think that when, when the rains come, it's just going to wash it away. And so for those spiders, I love the little souffle, souffle cups because you can use them for you know a couple months or so. When they start getting dirty, you pluck them out, you drop a brand new one in, and you just recycle the other ones. But usually once a week or so or so with the water dish, and if it's really dry in your house and you're noticing that they're evaporating much more quickly than usual, so like in your winter's air when things are you know sucking the moisture out of the air, you just check them a little more often. So pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Very straightforward. It's one I'm a huge proponent of water dishes. I actually, if I could have done a little happy dance when Dr. Andy Anderson brought that up in the podcast, I would have <laughs> because I was so happy to hear somebody, especially a veterinarian, say, hey, this is the best, easiest thing you can do. It's a fail safe. Yeah. There are folks out there, and unfortunately, that talk about the fact that they can get the moisture they need from their meals. They don't need a water dish. And technically true. They can, a lot of them can live off that. However, I've also seen situations where you have a spider that hasn't had a water dish for a while. You drop a water dish in it. You come back a few hours later, it's drinking. If it's getting all the moisture it needs, why would it need to drink from this water dish? Obviously, in the wild, they're going to come across puddles. They're going to come across – I've seen photos of spiders drinking the raindrops off of leaves and such. So they obviously, if there's water there that they can get extra water, they're going to go for it. Why not give them that opportunity? Exactly. And, and we see that in the reptile world as well, that people don't offer arid species water. And it turns out yep. that you really should. And especially when you're talking about tropical, you know, a spider living in a tropical area, even like there's going to be a source of water at all times, whether it's water droplets on leaves or just, you know, you know, moisture in the soil, it's, it's always going to yep. be there. So yep. there's really no need not to do it. I had an argument with a guy once. It was one of the few times I actually argued, like not, I tried to be polite about it, but it was really infuriating because a guy came on, I was talking about putting in a water dish. He's like, yeah, like they're going to have a water dish in their environment. And I'm like, well, A, 
they're not living in glass or plastic boxes yeah. with somebody dropping food in. They also have predators. Should I let a cat into my tarantula room on occasion to prey on them? Because that would be more like their natural environment, right? Like, and then as far as the water dish is concerned, the species he was talking about, it rains constantly. They've got access to water. Yeah, they don't have water dishes, but they have places they can go out and get a drink if and when they need it. And the thing about the arid species, I'm glad you mentioned that as well, because some of the species that I've seen drink the most are the arid yeah. ones. My Gramostola rosea, uh, uh, God, don't lose me, but Gramostola rosea porteri, they're changing the name now. They're going to become the same spider, the queen that I had for many, many years. She wanted it bone dry. If you moisten down a quarter of that substrate, she got the heck away from it. However, I've caught her drinking more than any of my other spiders. That's an arid species. They, even as slings, can be kept bone dry, but they still appreciate getting a drink every once in a while. Yeah, so that's good to know. Uh, my, my other question was about chemicals, because this is something that's so different than reptiles. Obviously, we use chemicals yep. to clean <laughs> and you know whatever it is, if it's uh, chlorhexidine or what, you know, we use lots of different things to, to sanitize and clean. Yep. And uh, as I started learning about tarantulas, I'm like, oh, this is like the worst thing you could ever do. I mean, I'm not someone that over cleans things anyway, but it's just far as, you know, the regular environment. What, what are some tips to make sure you're not going to poison an animal? Stay away from any chemical out there. Okay. <laughs> that would be the best. I don't use any. And it's funny because I did come from snakes and we'd clean stuff out and, you know, obviously you worry about salmonella and things of that nature. You want to really clean your cages out well. And that's something that you don't do. The, the good thing about tarantulas, they're very, very clean. Right. Even the moisture dependent species, very clean. They usually, they're clean animals in which they will take their food remains. They'll usually find one spot around their enclosure. They'll drop them. A lot of times it's in a water dish or behind a water dish, or there might be a corner. So it's easy to pluck those right out of there and keep any of that matter from decomposing or causing any issues. Their poo is like a bird poo. Like it's very liquidy. It just kind of blends in. And occasionally they'll do it in a water dish. Again, you just pluck out and clean the water dish. Or if you're using something disposable, dispose of it, put a new one in. The cleaning, the glass, some of them, like you mentioned, the Versicolor, they will sometimes poo on the glass. It's kind of funny and kind of infuriating. You put them in a beautiful enclosure, and next thing you know it, there's just dribbles of milky poo yeah, going oh yeah. all the way down it. So to clean that off, just straight warm water, or when I clean my enclosures, I use a mixture of warm water and like white vinegar and clean it that way, something very, very natural. And then I wash it out really good with fresh water and I'm good to go. But there's not, I no harsh chemicals. One of the things Dr. Andy Anderson and I talked about was the symptoms of DKS, mm -hmm. dyskinetic syndrome, where they basically lose all control of their faculties. It's pathetic to watch. It's despite it looks like it's been complete. It's almost like in the movies where robots fritz and they just, they're moving all around, their legs and arms are moving and they can't control themselves. It's almost like that. When you see it, it's terrible. But one of the main causes of it, we believe, is chemical poison. Right. So you want to be very, very careful with what you use. And they're not, they're not producing anything that would be harmful to a person either. So it's not like you have to worry, like obviously wash your hands after working with them. But it's not like they're producing anything out there that could cause like a salmonella or anything like that or a type of bacteria that could harm a person. So there really isn't need for real harsh chemicals. And I found the... Warm water and the vinegar, granted, things smell a little bit like vinegar for a bit and wear gloves because your hands will smell like it for a while, but it cleans them off beautifully. Now, what about tap water? Are, is tap water totally fine to use? It's We've had this discussion a lot. I have well water now. I have well water before. If you're using public water, I know back where I used to live before, we had public water and they would add fluoride yeah. to it. And they'd have, you know, that's something I don't know if I'd take the chance okay. with. Like, I wouldn't knowingly introduce. I don't know if you guys have that or if you have well yeah, water. Yeah, we have, or, uh, our, our water is chlorinated and there's fluoride in it as well. But I have, uh, 
a water filter that runs through and pulls everything out except for the minerals because, for myself because I don't yep. want to be I don't like drinking chlorine I don't like the taste of it either so no, maybe I'll just no, use no, that no. that's what I would use that because ours is the same that we have minerals in our water we have very hard water and I've never had a single issue with it I've had people that are super worried about that that will go out and buy the they'll buy the bottled Distilled water or, or, oh, yeah yeah distill I don't think you really know need to go that far I've been using the well water for many, many years had no issues with it whatsoever. I just wouldn't use anything that had any type of, you know, fluoride or chlorine or any of that added to okay. it. Chlorine, definitely not. Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking too. Okay. So that's, that's good. And, uh, feeders, one rule that I know my wife will have, and this is my <laughs> rule as well. I hate crickets. I just, you know, I've had crickets several times. I keep geckos. So, you know, once in a while we have crickets and yep. I just hate them. They always get out their pain. They're making noise. And I really want to avoid crickets at all costs. So A, can I do that? And, and B, what are some, you know, replacements, mealworms and whatnot are fine with me, but maybe I'll, I'll let you run with that. Yes, you can actually absolutely do it. I, I use crickets a lot. I just, I'm quick with them. And that's what it comes down to me. They, they stink. They, I love when we're like the other day we're in our basement, which is so opposite of the spot in the house where I keep my animals. It's not even funny. And I'm watching a movie and I see movement and there's a couple of crickets walking across the floor. So they made their way all the way down from the tarantula room, all the way into the basement. We had one show up in a lighting fixture the other oh, day. Yeah. Can't for the life of me figure out how it's a closed lighting fixture. Like we took it down. Like I am at a loss how this one got they get in. everywhere. So you're going, yeah, they get everywhere. It's, it's amazing. And then like you said, you're sitting there watching a movie and you hear the crickets going off in oh. the background. Or for me, I'm doing a podcast and like a doofus, I will feed the day before and something will get out and there'll be a cricket going in the back of the room drives me nuts. So you're not going to get any arguments out of me. I totally get it. Mealworms. A lot of folks will use mealworms, superworms. I don't know what you guys have available to you for roaches. Are you able to get uh, B lateralis roaches? No, roaches are illegal here. So we, that's what, okay. That's what I thought. Cause I've had people from Canada come on before and go, Oh, we can't get those. And I wasn't sure if it was different from uh, area to area. I think there is one so species now that has recently within the last couple of months been legalized, but then it just would not, it would be totally cost prohibited. Like there'd be nobody, I'd have to be ordering these bugs in from across the Canada. It would be, you know, it would make sense. Ordering two hundred dollars worth of roaches to feed one. Exactly. Spider. Yeah. <laughs> here's here's your fifteen dollar meal. Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mealworms. A lot of folks use mealworms. The trick with meal, do you guys get superworms yeah, as well? We superworms. Yeah. Okay. So mealworms. The trick with mealworms. The good thing with mealworms, you can a crush their heads. That's one thing right off the bat because or else what they can do is they can burrow. Oh yeah, yeah. I know. Especially lose themselves. Superworms. So. Yeah, superworms definitely. I had a video. I did. I fed out superworms years ago for a feeding video. I bought a bunch of them in the winter time because I couldn't get crickets. And I had somebody point out. They're like, "Did you see? You bit your spider there." I'm like, "What?" And I rewound it. And sure enough, you could see it latch on the spider's leg, and the spider's trying to shake it off. So, always want to crush the superworms head. Mealworms not as bad in that respect, but it keeps them from wandering away. You do want to have tongs available because sometimes you want to drop it right in front of the spider. Because the good thing, the reason I love crickets, they are the ultimate prey item for drawing out the hunting right, yes. They wander around like idiots. <laughs> I love the little guys. I really do deep in my heart, but they really do just wander right into the jaws of death. Yeah. The, the tarantulas love them. And that's why I was going to bring up B. lateralis because that would be right up there with crickets as far as ones that they just run around. They don't hide. They they completely they run around. The, the tarantulas love them. But yes, mealworms work perfectly fine. I went a long time using just mealworms and superworms because we had a period where I couldn't get crickets over the winter. And that's all I use. It works fine. And what about, uh, I see there is a tarantula 
and I don't know if he's a breeder or what they are in, in the province that I live in. I know they sell a few other types of feeders like rice beetles, I think, or confused beetles. I, I forget what those specifically the species is, but have you used any of those types of things? I've never used the beetles before. Okay. Um, I, I just don't think they're not as readily available around here. And now I've got like three different roach colonies going and then I buy crickets usually once a month. So I have enough going on. But if people, if it's something, I would just do some research into it and see if people say they take them. The biggest issue I've had, like we have things, B. lateralis roaches here. There are larger roaches. The adults are great for larger tarantulas because they're quite big, juicy, make a really good meal. The problem with them is that I've, I've had spiders that won't take mm-hmm. them. They, you drop them in and they just want nothing to do with them. It's incredibly frustrating. I've heard from other people as well. They're like, oh, I got, I got all these tarantulas now and I just started a B. lateralis colony and I don't think any of them are eating them. And that can be a problem sometimes. And there's another one that you want to crush their heads because unfortunately what they do is you drop them in and they burrow. And I had an enclosure once when I first started using them that I went to rehouse and I got the spider out. And after I got the spider out, I saw the dirt moving in the old enclosure. And I'm like, what is going on here? So I did a little digging and a big old roach comes yeah. out. I'm like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> that's, I didn't know that was in there. And then another one came out and I realized the thing I thought it would have been eating, these things have been burying themselves. Yeah, so that's the problem with super worms. Those things, they, they can yep, chew through anything. Same thing. Yeah. And I've had, unfortunately, folks, a horror story a while back where the person dropped the superworm in, the tarantula flipped the molt. They found the superworm biting the tarantula. Yeah. And luckily, in that case, the tarantula did live, but they can attra- they're attracted to the moisture. Oh, of it, yeah. So they will come in and feed all the crickets. Same thing. If you put crickets in a really dry enclosure, and all of a sudden you have this nice, moist, freshly molted tarantula there, they'll eat it. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's a pretty common practice too, just on the reptile side. You know, you don't want to be leaving food unattended, even even if it is crickets. Yep. You know, they will they could chew on a gecko's leg or whatever. You know, they'll, they'll pick on them. So I think that uh, it's pretty straightforward for me. But yeah, that's good. I think I could I could probably manage. I probably have enough options here that aren't crickets that I could uh, play around with. That's good. They'll eat just about it. And and the trick is sometimes you'll find if you're using like prey that aren't very commonly used, you'll recognize quickly. Some things will take them, some won't. If they don't take them, you just try something yeah. else. Now, what about molting? You know, we kind of alluded that already. That's another thing where I think it's probably intimidating for beginners because it's, you know, with snakes and, and whatnot, you know, a bunch of my snakes are shedding right now. It's super easy. <laughs> you know, you don't have to do anything. Yeah. You don't really have to worry about anything. But it seems like with, with tarantulas, there's maybe a little more caution to make sure that they have a successful molt. So is there, is, are there some key things that you just come out right away to say to make sure that they do it successfully? Always make sure they have access to water. Okay. Regardless, if that, that's a huge one, and that's one of the things that came out when uh, Andy and I spoke was the fact that that's one of the biggest issues with molting problems is that folks, what'll happen is they'll be feeding their spider, the spider's doing great, all of a sudden the spider stops eating, and then they go, oh my gosh, it's in pre-molt, and it's been dry in here, I'm going to add water now, and sometimes they add water too late. So it's like I, I've had folks go, yeah, my spider's flipped over, so I moistened everything down. No, 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 it's too late at that point. It needs the moisture ahead of time, because when they molt, they pump that that fluid between the two exoskeletons to separate them so they can work their way out. And if there's not enough fluid there for them to do it, that's when you start getting problems sometimes where they get stuck in molts. So the biggest thing is to make sure that even if it's an arid species, it has access to water before it goes into pre-molt. If if you recognize, oh my gosh, it's it's lethargic, it's obviously not eating, I think it might be in pre-molt, and then you start trying to add the water, it can sometimes be too late. Molting is, it's funny because the same thing, coming from snakes, snakes molting was no big deal. Never a big deal. Snakes molting, 
who cares? Like, it's awesome. You get them all out. But it wasn't like with spiders. It's like single-handedly like one of the most rewarding things, rewarding parts of the hobby and one of the scariest parts of the hobby because there's always that worry that the molt doesn't go well. It's more, so much more of a traumatic experience for lack of a better term for the spider than it would be for a snake. Right. Yeah. A bad molt with a snake is nothing. I mean, it's, it's not ideal, but you give it a little bath and then you're done. Yep. Done. And with these guys, it's like when you watch them flip over and go through that process, it's like, my gosh, so much could go wrong here. And how long so is I that think process? Like once they, so maybe I'm sure it's different depending on their age, but from the pre-molt and then the one, once they flipped over, what's the timeline? It really depends. Okay. With slings, it depends, depending on the feeding sp- schedule and the species for some of the faster growing ones. Like I know my Sea Cainio pubescens and my Lazyodor parahybana back where I had my first slings, they were basically, they would eat for a couple weeks, they would go into pre-molt, and then they would molt maybe after a month and a half, two months. Okay. And then they repeat, and each time it would get, both periods would get longer. So the pre-molt would get a little bit longer, and then the molt, the time it took for them to harden up afterwards takes a little bit longer. So everything gets a little bit longer. So I've had folks be like, I don't understand this one. Last time it molted, it molted within two months. Now it's taking, you know three months to do it. Well, that's probably because it's getting bigger. So adults, you'll start seeing the larger specimens. They can go, I've had some go two and a half, three years. I have one of them go seven years. Between oh, molts. wow. And yeah. And then the time it takes them to actually molt slings, they flip over within an hour or so they're out of it. They're done. I had my Theraphosa species the other day flipped over. I believe it was like noon. I came up, they were flipped over. And that evening, they still hadn't fully molted yet. Wow. So it could be hours for them to actually go through the molting process. And then likewise, you always got to keep in mind that the larger the specimen, the longer it's going to take for them to harden up. So what's that so process? Slings, Obviously, I understand the, the process of the exoskeleton becoming tougher and harder. It, what, what needs to be done there for them? Just hands off? Hands off. Give them space. Do not mess with them. Do not go in and try to pull the molt out. This drives me nuts when people come in and show this like sopping wet molt that they pulled out because a lot of times what they will do people talk about their tarantula is eating their molts they're not eating the molts they are basically gathering up that moisture that they use to pump in between the two layers of exoskeletons and they're trying to recoup that gotcha. so they will take it a lot of times if you see a fresh a large tarantula molt a fresh molt that molt is sopping wet it's kind of gross but it's sopping wet and what they will do is they will suck that moisture up one thing you can do sometimes and i've done and i've seen it work pretty well is when they're sucking the moisture off that, I've carefully gone ahead and taken like a pipette and just added some water onto the mold. Mm. So that way there's a little extra water for them there to take in. But for the most part, you hands completely off. Don't move the, keep moving the cage. Don't keep opening the cage to get pictures. Don't pull the molt out if they're standing on top of it. Just let them do their thing because that process can take a while. I've had people that they spook the spider. It ends up, they're completely soft after the molt. So they can easily crimp a leg, cause a bend in a leg, damage a leg. You want to just, there's really nothing you could do at that point except back off and let them dry up. And, and you'll see some really, we call it uh, spider yoga. When they start hardening up, they do all these weird stretches in their new exoskeleton. It's really kind of cool when you see it. They'll stretch out like flat as board of a board just on their toes. It's the neatest thing you'll ever see. And, and then but it's yeah, visible. Not, you can tell when, once they have hardened up. It's easy to tell just from your eye. You, it's It can be t- difficult to tell. The trick is to look at the fangs. When the fangs come out, they're usually clear, milky color. They start to harden up. They turn like a reddish color. Okay. When they turn black, that's usually when they're ready to eat. But as a rule of thumb with slings – you give them several days. Most folks will give their slings a week after they like smaller slings. You give them at least a week, 
let them harden up, then try them with prey item. Gotcha. With larger specimens, you're talking about like I my Theraphosa just mel- molted. It'll be a month before I even try offering them anything. Just from experience, I've found it takes them a while to feel completely comfortable in their new skin, fangs are hardened up and ready to eat. Gotcha. Okay. That's that's really good. That's info that I had not come across before. So so that's that'll be very helpful. And another area of questions that I have is this is probably one of those things where you need to have more experience, but like the, the keeper needs to have experience. But I'm just curious, you know, what are the spiders capable of as far as like their movement? Like when I watch you doing rehousing, like my, the things that come through my head, I'm like, is that, can that a spider climb a wall? Can it climb up a tub? Is it going to jump? How fast is it? it I, I assume it's somewhat species dependent, but you know, when, when you're doing a rehousing, for example, can they all, can, can only a few species like, uh, you know, traverse up a, a plastic wall or is asking what a tarantula is capable of, is that too vague of a question? No, no, that's a, actually a great question. And one I had already taken notes on the cover at one point, because I always try to warn people of this. They can climb plastic. Okay. They, depending on the size, they can be a little bit clumsy. I found that most of them, if there's a, a vertical barrier. So if a spider, if I'm at any time I'm rehousing or the majority of times I'm rehousing, I have a larger plastic container that I have both the new, the old enclosure and the new enclosure in. For the spiders to get out, they will usually circle. That's one of the things I've noticed. If they come out of their enclosure, they'll hit the ground and they circle and they like corners. So a lot of times they'll run and they'll hit a corner and they'll pause for a minute. Or they'll keep running until they finally stop and they'll end up in a corner. And that's one of the reasons if you watch some of my videos, you'll see I have crumpled up paper towels in the, all right. the corners. It's because when they get out, they'll also, if they feel, if they get out, they're running, they're like, I need, I need cover. I need to hide. And they get under those paper towels and they'll just freeze there. And we finally, we've had it work before and I hadn't before I started doing the YouTube stuff. I, I'd done this trick and it worked for us a couple times and I'd never been able to show it up. And I can't remember which species is the one we did fairly recently where we finally saw the spider get out run around, stop underneath the paper towel. So you can do things. Uh, the one thing I try to explain to people with rehousings is the best mindset you can get in when approaching a rehousing is the fact that the spider may get out and that's okay. And that's why you use that extra barrier. So you have, like, if you're just doing it on your dinner table, you have two things there and you have a bunch of stuff on your dinner table and the spider gets out and hides, not a good situation. But if you're in a controlled environment, clean environment where there's not a lot of places it can hide, you have your extra barrier there, it's okay for the spider to get out. Sometimes it makes it a lot easier to cup them and get them into the new enclosure. Mm-hmm. But they can climb plastic. They can run. If you watch them run, especially on plastic, they can't, they can definitely negotiate. They can go up it, they can climb it, but they're a little clumsy on it bathtubs. That's a lot of people like to do their rehousings in the bathtub. And that can really help because although there's a a myth out there that they can't climb the bathtubs, they can climb the bathtubs. However, they have a difficult time doing it. It slows them down quite a bit. And if you take the bathtub ahead of time and you moistly wet the whole thing down and have it nice and wet, that makes it even more difficult. They can't get their grip very well. So what you'll see is the spider will shoot up. Bill and I did an experiment. There's a while back. We tried to do one in the bathtub, and I watched it kind of climb up and slide back down. They tried to climb up, and it slid back down. So it gives you adequate time if the spider gets out and bolts to take a deep breath and go, all right, I'm going to wait till this thing comes down, and I'm going to cup it. So yeah, they can move. Depending on the species, it's tough because I used to think they move so fast, and then I started working with huntsman spiders. <sighs> And it's no longer, I. it's nice in a way because I look at tarantulas like, hey, I got this, no problem. But then, you know, the huntsmen, they're so darn, like they teleport. But there are like a lot of the beginner species, even as the slings will be a little quick, but they're very easy to wrangle in my estimation. Like they're not, 
you the best thing you can do if one of them bolts is you just take a step back and watch where it goes. Right. And if you're doing it like you should be inside a bigger container and you put those paper towels in, it's usually going to end up underneath one of those. And it makes it, you know, again, you just pick up the paper towel, stick it in the new enclosure, brush it off with a brush or pick up the paper, paper towel, cup it very easy. But I, I think everybody has that moment where they experience their first spider bolt and there is that, whoa, like these guys can really boogie. But then once you see it, you know what to expect and you realize that even when they can bolt, they're usually fairly, usually fairly easy to wrangle up. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. So the, the if you if you, as long as you're using that secondary container, the likelihood of a spider scaling the wall immediately and making a break for it is probably pretty it's small. Very very small. And I will tell you that one of the I, I said this a while back. Somebody asked, "What's the most important thing you learned about rehousings?" It is to n- plan for the spider to not go directly from point A to point B. Okay, that when I changed my mindset to recognize when I first started rehousing to rehouse. I was still a little bit scared of them. And my thought was, I have to get this spider directly from this old enclosure directly into this other enclosure or things have gone horribly wrong. Because as soon as it got out, it's like, oh my God, no man's land. What do I do here? And then I started realizing, no, that's not it at all. Sometimes it's a lot easier and you get a much calmer spider if you get them out into another larger container first. So I will purposely sometimes take the old enclosure, tilt it on its side, get the spider out in the open and then cup it that way. And that's a good rehousing. So the trick is to recognize it's not always going to go into from point directly from point A to point B and plan for that ahead of time. And having that extra barrier is a big part of that. Okay, that's good to know. As, as far as rehousing goes, is there a certain cue you use when you're looking at the spider in the enclosure when it's ready for the next one? It's I've tried to cover this before. It's it's you kind of get a feel okay. for it. It's there's times where you're looking at a spider and you just go, wait a minute you've outgrown this enclosure. It also depends on the species. I have some species like the slow growing beginner species we've talked about. Those you put them, you know, if they're an inch and you put them in a bigger enclosure, they're going to be in that enclosure for quite some time. It's going to take them a while to outgrow it. There are other species, the faster growing ones, you move it into a bigger enclosure, three molts later, it's too big for it. So you kind of start to get a feel for what, there's no right or wrong answer. I like to give mine a little more room nowadays. Back in the days, I didn't give them so much room. So it wasn't, I, I didn't rehouse as often. But you start to recognize sometimes it comes down to you just you want to change or you notice that the spider's enclosure is getting a little bit ratty. It's been in, you know, you have, say, a Brachypelma smithy. It's been in the same enclosure for three years. It hasn't quite outgrown it, but the enclosure looks kind of drab. You want to try some new things. You want to give the spider a couple different choices of burrows this time. You want to put some plants in. Then you might decide to just do it because aesthetically you want to give it, you know, a different look for yourself and for the spider. So there's no real science to it. I know people out there will say there's specific measurements. I really don't feel like it works that way. You just kind of start to get a feel for, all right, this container is four inches by four inches. The spider just molted. It's three inches. I definitely need to get it into something bigger. Okay. That makes sense. And I think my last question is this, uh, is the difference between males and females, because I think that that's another thing where it's pretty significant in the tarantula world. So I guess my first question is, how do you actually tell? Because I always hear people say, okay, now I can sex it after a certain age. You can look at the molt or whatever. So I'm curious how that is. And then care wise you know you had already mentioned you know as the males become sexually mature they're going to become more uh, active and, and prowling and yep. whatnot but there is a pretty big difference as far as life uh, lifespan and whatnot so so what are the things that i need to watch for well the male versus female unfortunately males aren't as valued for by most obvious due to the longevity issues right. males do not live as long as females uh, some of the species like i have a male that i've now had it's i think he's 
nine years old. So some of the older, the longer lived species, females can, we think there are species of spiders that can live the 40, 45, even 50 wow. years. We're not even sure yet because we haven't been keeping them all that long to know how long can they live for. So having a male live 10, 12 years from one of those species makes a lot of sense. Some of the faster growing species, I've had males mature out under a year. So all of a sudden you look in there like, oh no. And the oh no comes from the fact that, you know, at that point, once a male's mature, it's all it wants to do is breed. That's its sole purpose. When you keep a mature male, it's sad because your male just basically roams around looking for a lady until it breaks down and dies. It's it's rather pathetic. And so I think that's a big difference between males and females. Most males will mature out much earlier than their females. So if you have a male and a female from the same sack, the male will mature out and be ready to breed. Most of the females aren't anywhere near ready to pair. And that's probably something you know, in the environment to keep them from inbreeding too much. The as far as sexing them is concerned, I like to look at molts. Okay. You take basically the inside of the molt. You can find the spermatheca for the female, and certain ones out there, it's they're more readily seen earlier than others. There are certain species it takes a while for those to start showing, and I think it does take some practice to be able to do that. Other folks will look at them ventrally, so when they're up on the glass, they'll be able to tell whether or not it's a male or female. I'm not particularly great at that. I know there are people out there that are amazing at being able to just look at it and go, that's a male, that's a female. I think there's a lot of folks out there that guess. Years ago, I put up a picture of the underside of my tarantula on a forum and I said, what do you think? I'm thinking female. And all these people get, you got a male, you got a male, you got a male, you got a, it was a female. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I will tell you, that isn't like talking about how great I was. I had no idea. I was guessing just as much as anybody else was. So that wasn't like, look how smart I was. It was just, it was difficult to tell at that point. So I think the easiest way to do it is to look at the actual molts when they get to be a certain size, depending on the species. Some of them, like I know people that can use a microscope and sex molts like inch, inch and a half, which blows my mind in certain species. I cannot do that. I've tried on some, been somewhat successful, but I don't spend a lot. It takes some practice. But for me, I don't do a lot of sexing. I will, if I get a good molt, I will take it out and try to sex it. But a lot of mine, I just like to be surprised. It's kind of like gender reveal parties. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't do that. I just, let's see what it is. Oh, it's a male. Sometimes I don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you got a spider that you only bought one of that you absolutely adore. And it's like, I'm just going to pretend like you're going to be a girl until you molt out. So, but yeah, it's, it's, oh, go ahead. So when you say you, you, you see a male molt and you, you see that it's matured out, what are you looking at to give you that impression? So at the end of the pedipalps, the the basically the two the tarantulas technically we say they have eight legs. They have that small set of legs outside of the chlorisera, their fangs yeah. area there that they use for manipulating prey and such. The males get their sex organs on the end of those during their final molt. Okay. So what you'll see, some of them also get hooks, tibial hooks that are on their actual legs that that's used to hold the females back. Not all species get those. That's not the best way to look because there are some species that won't get those, but all males will get those sex organs at the end. They look like little bulbs. They're basically the male's sex organ that folds up into itself. And that's what they use to fill with the sperm. And that's what they use when they hold the female up to impregnate. Gotcha. So those are usually, once you see a couple pair of them, it becomes it becomes a lot easier to recognize. Um, I know when I first started, I had a couple times where I had, you know, a spider, and I'm like, somebody go, oh, nice male. I'm like, wait a minute, how do you know it's a male? And then you look like, oh, 
there it is. So it becomes more obvious the more you keep them. But it's, it's something that's usually pretty easy to see. A lot of times what I'll do is something will and I'll shine a flashlight in. And even just kind of seeing the silhouette, you can tell those aren't the little feet that you expect to see with a female. It's got the sex organs on the end. So once you see that, you know that last molt was the last molt. And that, that's the last You might molt. not even eat after that. Some of them won't eat. Some of them will eat sporadically. I have had recently, amazingly enough, three different males try to molt again after their ultimate molt. It seems to happen in avicularia species more often than the other species, but it doesn't usually go well because those sex organs are not meant to molt off. So usually what ends up happening is they lose their pedipalps if they end up living. And I did talk to a guy that had, uh, I want to say it was an avicularia. He was a mature male. It molted and survived the second molt. Wow. And then continued to eat and then tried to molt a third time. And the third one, that was that was it. So it does happen every once in a while, but usually that's it. That's its last molt. Its job now is to roam around and to find a lady. So when you say you have a nine-year-old male, that male hasn't gone through that last molt yet? No, he's he's gone through it. He's going on uh, three years post-ultimate molt. Okay, so he's not remolted at all, He but he's eating. Nope, and, uh, nope. he's wow. still eating well. I fed him the other day. He's still eating like a machine. It's a Gremistola pulchra, the uh, jet black spiders, yep. everybody known as the black lab of the hobby. But uh, he was one that I sexed out early. I was hoping to get a lady, and I sexed out early, and I'm like, ah, it's a male, and I still held out hope it was going to be a female. And then a few years ago, he molted out male, and he's still going strong. Wow, okay, that's cool. Well, that uh, that's awesome. I mean, that's a ton of information for me. I think that that's all my questions that come up to the top of my head for for the beginning. So I, I don't know if uh, if you have anything else to add to those questions, but I, that gives me a ton of information to work with for sure. No, I'll be really curious to hear as you go along what you choose. I mean, I think we talked. I don't, and I want to go back to the the Caribbean Universe color because I know that people are going to freak out because I said that they're a little more tricky, but they are. I mean. For years, they're beautiful spiders, and honestly, I would love to hear if you gave one a shot because I think you'd do very well with it because you have an understanding of – I think you'd be less inclined to do the overcaring form that can lead to the untimely right. death. And they are beautiful spiders. The webbing's amazing. It's just one of those deals that for for years, people reported the, you know, the mysterious death. They called it, it – originally, it was an avicularia species. And they called it a, a sudden avicularia death syndrome, where suddenly you have an avicularia, it's doing great, and then it's dead. Nobody could figure out what was going on. And we attributed it to them being overly moist. And then we put out a bunch of information out there showing people you don't need to keep them overly moist. A lot of people keep them dry with a water dish. They do great. And somehow we still get a lot of death. So I think part of it is still the fact that there is a lot of that misinformation out there. If you've done any research with tarantulas, you've realized there are a million different people reporting on them, telling how to keep them. And sadly, a lot of that's coming from people who have never kept a tarantula in their life. They've just found out they're popular and they want to do a website and attract people. So they go out and regurgitate information that they find from somewhere else. And a lot of times, sadly, it's not good information. That's why when looking, I always tell people, visit multiple sources, but try to visit sources of people that have actually successfully raised them. So I would be very curious to hear back from you. I don't know, future your show, my show, hear about what you got and how it's going with it and answer any questions you might yeah, have. Yeah, I'll definitely keep you posted. I'm not sure when I'll pull the trigger, but definitely sometime this spring, I think. i wait for the weather to warm up if I'm doing any shipping and whatnot. But, and there's another, there'll be an expo in the spring too, which maybe I'll just nice. pick one up in person will save me some money on shipping. But either way, I'm definitely getting close and uh, I'm super excited about it because it's there. It's a fascinating side of, of animal keeping and it, it's cool to keep something that you're a little bit intimidated by i think and to learn with yep. it and and to you know it's a whole other skill set that you can pick up on so i'm definitely excited 
And I'll be very curious to see how long you keep to one. Yeah, I know. I know. See, I'm pretty good with that. Like I only have six reptiles and I know people. Yeah, I remembered you telling yeah. me that last time that you get, you're very yeah, good. So, so we'll, we'll see. I went a long time before, like, I think I went like four year stretch between rept. I just, that rat snake that I was talking about earlier is my latest purchase, but that was, I purchased that in 2022. And I think it, before that it had been early 2018, but between my last purchase. Oh, wow. So I, I'm, I'm pretty good about that. Partly it's space and partly I, I just, yeah. you know, I really try to be conscious of improving the animal's care that I have currently rather than going out and getting another one. But with spiders, that's a little bit harder because you can have so many enclosures in such a small spot. That's the thing. And, you, and you'll see, you'll have your little sling sitting there. <laughs> I'm like, wow, uh, well, it's in pre-molt. There's not much to do. Hmm. What else is there out there? And that's a lot of times how it goes. Yeah, it's, yeah. A lot of times the, the running joke on message boards and on Facebook groups is, oh, I got my sling. It's in pre-molt. What do I do now? Buy another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is not always the responsible answer, but I do think, I know that's how it kind of started with me as I had my two slings I was raising. They both, one of them buried themselves. One of them was my C-kind of pubis and she webbed herself up. I'm like, okay, this is pre-molt. All I do now is wait. And I kept checking and checking and checking. I'm like, I got to stop fixating on this. What should I do? Hmm, what else is there out there? And I bought a Caribbean Versicolor. So it's kind of how it happens. There's always, when you have a lot of them, the, the problem is they're not the most active animals. And if kept correctly, and you'll notice this, they don't do all that much, especially during the daytime. At night, you can sometimes sneak out and find them exploring and yeah. whatnot. So what happens is people want to have more to do with them, so they get more. Yeah. And see, that's what I'm, I'm probably okay with. I mean, I, I have a rainbow, uh, Brazilian rainbow boa. I, I see that snake. <sighs> five times a year, <laughs> you know, like I do not yep, see that yep. snake. Besides, I mean, besides like classic maintenance and whatnot, but to see it out, it almost never happens. She's super nocturnal and I'm super not nocturnal. I'm a very like a morning yeah. person. So I'm, I'm in bed by 10. So our paths never cross and you know, she drinks water. I feed her and whatnot, but yeah, it's, it's a, not the, it's not like the pet experience that many people might expect from a pet where I'm already kind of predisposed to, to not having an issue with that. And, but that's the one thing that tarantulas lend themselves to, right? Is the, the fact that they don't need a ton of attention every single day. So it can be easy to, it can be easy to have a substantial collection without sacrificing the welfare of each animal. And I think that's really important. That is very well put. And I think that's the part that a lot of folks that look from the outside, even people that I talk to, like, I don't understand how you keep track, how you take care of properly of that many animals. And then you start breaking down how little they need, how, you know, they don't need to eat often. They don't, they're not messy. They don't need to be taken out and walked or play. And there's, they are so easy to keep in that respect and so much hands off. We, we often compare them to tropical fish. Yes. People, I just had a discussion the other day and the guy turned around and he goes, all right, so I'm going to ask you something. What is the point of having all those animals? If you're not going to, if you're going to have all these spiders and you're not going to hold them or play with them or take them out, what is the point of having them? I go, you have fish, right? And he's like, yeah. And I go, do you take them out and handle them? And he just kind of grinned and he's like, yeah, okay, I get it. You're yeah. right. I get it now. That makes a lot of sense. And I wasn't doing it to be a jerk. It was just he immediately got where I was going with. There's certain animals you keep just to admire. It's and I just think that's appreciation. About yeah. Them is, yeah. Appreciate them. Get them out in those times where you do sneak up in the middle of the night or with you, if you're getting up really early in the morning before the sun comes out, that's some of the best time to creep up there and catch these guys out and about. I know every once in a while I get up early for school on school days and I'll head up here early in the morning and I'll flick the lights on and I see everybody that I never see because they're all, you know, at the end of their nocturnal prowling going around checking things out doing some webbing and i get to see a lot of them it's so much fun and so yeah weird. exactly and and par part of my morning routine is coming up or coming downstairs to, to my basement where the animals are and doing the misting and i a couple of days a week i wake up really early so i'm down here misting the animals at probably like 4 30 in the morning so it's super dark and, and so that would be a perfect time to you know come out and get the flashlight and see yep. uh who's up 
And the good thing is the species that you're looking at, you're probably going to see them quite yeah. a bit, especially geniculata. And you're, that's, it's one that's really, as I've kept my newer ones, really grown on me. And I get the appeal to folks who are new to the hobby. It's, a lot of folks will call it like the perfect beginner spider to start with if you're doing a sling because of all the things it brings to the table. It's, it's you know, obviously quite durable. It grows quickly enough that you actually get to see it grow and feel like it's growing and they're visible as adults. So that's my vote. Yeah. Right I, that's, that's a really strong front runner for me too. And they've always been, it's always one that I come back to. And I, cause every time I see a picture, like sometimes, especially if I go a couple of weeks without thinking about tarantulas, I'll go back to pictures and without looking at the species, I'm like, what, what is that one? Like it always draws my attention because of the, the yep. color. So yeah, I, I think that one's, I think I don't want to say a hundred percent, but I think, 99% that'll be the first, uh, probably the first sling. And then when you come back and we chat again and you pick something totally different, that'll be fun. Yeah, to yeah exactly. I can explain what happened. <laughs> I, I can't tell you. I, so many people I talk to, they're like, yeah, I'm just going to get my first. I know what I'm getting. I know what I'm getting. And they come back and like, I got something totally yeah. different. Like, all right, it happens. Exactly. All right. So for, this has been absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I'm so glad we can reconnect. I do hope we can do it again and sooner. Uh, as soon as not, I mean, not three years or four years. Yeah. We won't wait for another pandemic uh, to go through. Yeah. But full disclosure, I don't think either of us realize how long it had been. I honestly thought that was like a year and a half ago. So I was was shocked when I looked it up, but I definitely love to touch base with you again. Once you pulled the trigger, I'm I'm just, for me, it's fun hearing about people get, I, I remember getting into it myself and it's fun because I can still remember a lot of the stuff I went through and it's, fun for me to talk to somebody that's going through that again and being able to share like, all right, I thought I've done that. I've been there. I know what you're feeling. So hopefully we can connect again. So for folks who are looking for you online, where can they find you? If you just search animals at home uh, on YouTube or or Google, you'll find the website, you'll find the YouTube channel. The podcast gets posted to both the YouTube channel. So it's a video podcast as well as audio. So any audio platform, uh, Spotify, Apple, and uh, on the, on the audio platform, it is technically a network, Animals at Home Network, so you will also see shows from other producers. So there's two or three other people who are producing content, uh, a separate show underneath the Animals at Home Network banner. So if you are somebody who's interested in keeping exotics or keeping just, you know, I have lots of people who listen to the show that don't even keep reptiles, but they enjoy the conversation. There's normally one or two new episodes a week. Sometimes they're from me, sometimes they're from the other people. But if you do go to Animals at Home YouTube, it'll all be me, and that's where you'll find the Animals at Home podcast. And, uh, and just to reiterate what you had said there tom i totally agree I, this is, i'm so glad we we're able to reconnect and we will absolutely do another one uh, in the future and and see where we are because it's uh it's fun to have these conversations and these dialogues and, and i hope for the listeners if there's any brand new people to tarantula keeping or you know wanting to get into it hopefully i was able to ask questions that you were thinking as well because you know sometimes it's nice to have a beginner ask the questions because if you're an expert it's hard to put yourself back in those shoes so hopefully it was helpful for people and uh, i'm super glad we were able to do this so thank you for having me no, it's awesome. And it's funny. I've wanted to do something like this for many, many, many years. Have somebody that's either just gotten into the hobby or is looking to get into the hobby ask these types of questions. And so to have somebody to do it with your background knowledge. So you're coming at it with having all the background knowledge from keeping other exotics has just been fantastic. So thanks again. And I will definitely look forward to talking to you in the future. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Tom. All right, that is the end of that episode. Again, Tom, thank you so much for allowing me to come on your show and allowing me to pick your brain and ask questions and just being an incredible resource for the tarantula keeping community. It's just, as I said to you privately, once I started getting into that world, I just it really revealed how much of a resource your podcast is and it made me realize... 
I, I could do, there's some things that I can improve with my show to uh, give more instructional content and more content that it's very easy to tell that you're a teacher because when you listen to your podcast, you come away with deliverables. I know how to do this. I know how to do this. I know how to do this. And as a beginner, that was really invaluable, super, super helpful. So thank you so much. Again, thank you for letting me use some of your visual content for the video version of this episode. And to the listeners, go check out Tom's channel. If you're not already following him on YouTube or any podcast app, make sure you go do that, even if you're not into tarantulas. I think we all admit here that we're into weird and creepy and crawly things. And if you're someone that's like, I'll never get into tarantulas, be careful. Because <laughs> I may have, like I said in the pod, I'm not sure if I've ever actually said that but I would, I would be very surprised if I would get into tarantulas. And now I'm basically 99% of the way there. Um, so I'll have to go back on his show once I do pick up a couple slings and ask more questions because I'm sure I will continue to have more questions. So it's been a lot of fun, this whole tarantula thing and, and learning from Tom and being on his podcast. So again, thank you so much to Tom. Thank you guys for listening. If you're looking for more information on this episode, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. Thank you to my patrons. I your support means the world to me. If you're interested in joining us over there, you can do that at patreon.com slash animals at home. Thank you so much to Custom Reptile Habitats for sponsoring this podcast. I know I think I said it in the last couple episodes, there's a few more enclosures right here over top of my left shoulder for those who are watching on YouTube that are going to be uh, installed. They're on their way now. So... You know, I'm recording this in the, in the very beginning of April, so hopefully I have a video later this spring out with actually putting those together and, and we'll have this studio finished, which will be super excited. I'm just going to have to find a place to put tarantulas, I guess. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, thank you guys for listening. You can give me a follow on, on Instagram at animalsathomeca. Make sure you tag me if you're going to share the podcast because I love to repost that as well. I will catch you guys in the next episode.